watch through for the All Things the Same podcast. I'm Joey Rackavan. I am here with Barrett Lewis in his home. And uh-huh. we have Jepson's Malort. Jepson's Malort has been described as many things. None of them are flattering. I'm a little scared <laughs> when I bought it. The guy who sold it to me just went ugh. <laughs> and I was like, is that bad? He's like, just wait. <laughs> so it's been described as tasting like pencil shavings and heartbreak. Uh, like a burning condom full of gasoline. Uh, and here me and Barrett are going to take a shot. Uh, I don't know what your preferred toast is. I'm I'm of German extra- or Austrian extraction, so we do Nostrovia. All right. A version of it. All right. Skull, bottoms yeah. up. Oh, I've had worse, but it's, not it's super bitter. Like, it's yeah. taste, like if you smell it. It just I get the I get the rubber part. I get the Goosebumps. like the real bitter part. <laughs> it's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. It's the same it's on par bitter wise with Boy. I've had absinthe before and absinthe has a similar yeah, it does. bitterness to it. Yeah. That's drinkable. That's mixable. So uh Yeah, I agree. I'm not gonna be just doing shots off the tip with this thing. No, no. But Ooh. it is not as bad as what I thought it was gonna be. Of course, I may have, through years of smoking and stuff, destroyed my sense of smell or my taste buds. Mostly it's just is really overwhelmingly bitter. 
Yeah, definitely. That's the back end taste. Of yeah, it's that. It's just sitting in the back of my throat. Yeah. Just. Yeah, it it is intense. It does remind me of something, but uh, it's not yeah. uh, percolating to the forefront of my mind at the moment. It's got a little bit of a like. It's a, and you get the grain, like you get that grain, like that hard grain hit of alcohol with it. Definitely. Just that smack of it right there, but. That's that's whew, yeah. I'm gonna have to do something about it. I'm I'm taking a little, little, water. little water. I'm I've got uh here later on. We're gonna be making a cocktail, so uh, yes, that incorporates malort. But I got a little sweet and lime juice. I'm gonna just pour myself a little little shot of sweet and lime juice. Hopefully, you know that might clear be it out for sure. Yeah, lime juice cure all. Speaking yeah, of lime juice. We got so the cocktail called for. Uh, Rattler, right? Yeah. So it calls specifically for a grapefruit. Barrett, Barrett says he doesn't mess with grapefruit. Yeah, so I got the lemon. You got the lemon? We have a grapefruit Rattler, the Stiegel Rattler. Specifically, it calls for Stiegel Rattler. Stiegel Rattler, Jepson's Malort. Uh, bitters, we have orange and Angostura. I got both here. Have you a cocktail call for one in particular or both? Or? Uh... I like just to throw bitters in there, like if I'm like even if I'm not gonna drink, make a cocktail per se. Yeah. If I have just like a like a spindrift or a bubbly water, you throw a couple shots of either of those in there, and it's a nice little after dinner type of thing. And it's not a ton; it's not hardly the alcoholic amount's negligible. It just gives it a little more zip. Uh oh, oh we got a rug in. Oh, uh, we got we got a rug rat coming in. All right, let's get in here. Let's All right, you say hi. All right. Hi. Don't ever drink this. Yeah. Please don't ever drink this. And never ever touch this. Yeah, I can feel it. Yeah, it's. Mama. You won't have a traumatized life like I. Do. Yeah, it feel it feels like I gargled a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a very distinct. Uh, perfect. Yeah. It's so really good news. We were talking to Pam about. It. I am going to save her. A smidgen of this to try later on when she doesn't have responsibilities right. to take children around. Definitely. But uh, it's not murderously bad. It's not. It's not what people made it out to be. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was definitely more bark than bite. Yeah, as, far as that was concerned. Yeah. I, like I said, if, and especially I can see this playing real well, especially with the bitters from a grapefruit. So yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of cocktails in my life, and uh, you know, something like this. Um, does not intimidate me comparatively to other things that I've had. A lot yeah. of liquors in my life. Um, I've had worse. You know, if you're going to get some, like, really cheap rail whiskey, like, not that these are the same type of liquors, but I've had, like, worse. Yeah. Alcohol. I've drank Early Times. Early Times was described in, uh, oh, what is it? it's in Sutri, that Cormac McCarthy book, uh, as Early Graves. Yeah. <laughs> They said when you turn it, the bubbles go up it's slow, and that's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait. It's a little little syrupy. I'm gonna find my I'm finding the recipe with this cocktail right now, so Yeah, we gotta give him the recipe here. Yeah, so the bitter end cocktail. I think this is the one I looked at, yeah. So oh cool, they want to tell you their life story, like every recipe oh, yeah, goes definitely necessary. So the bitter end cocktail, uh let's see here. Three ounces of Malort liquor. You can replace it with gin, apparently. Uh, uh, 
I'm I'm a gin person anyway, so yeah, I can I see probably, this. Yeah, yeah. Even if this doesn't work with the Malort, I can see it working with gin, especially if something with a nice like yeah botanical varietal to it. Uh, one and a half fre- one and a half ounces fresh cream squeezed lime juice. I hedged our bets, like I said, and I went ahead and got sweetened lime juice because yeah, it's it needs it. Uh, then it says one sixteen point nine ounce can of Stiegel Radler to garnish citrus slices and fresh mint. There you go. All right, so let's see if this uh, does okay or if it ends up tasting like toilet water. And so, we, of course, got our spooky glasses. Yeah. It is that time of it's, year. It's spooky season. Got I got Freddy Krueger here. Yeah, I got Pennywise, the dancing clown. Yeah. The Tim Curry version is what it looks like here, not the uh, right. Bill Skarsgård. Right. All right, so. Robert England, of course. Yeah. No other. Not Jackie Earl Haley. No. Which, respectable gentleman, but... Uh, the film was so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he should have stuck to being Rorschach. Yeah, I'm bad with that one. Yeah. All right, everybody. So we are back, and we are set up uh, here on the couch. We're going to be watching The Exorcist here momentarily. Uh, just to let you guys know, it is going to be the director's cut, so you have an idea of what we're watching if you want to do the watch-along style. But first, we, of course, wanted to address the end results of our mixed drinks. Yeah. Uh, Joey was so kind to be our mixologist for yeah. today. And uh, so Joey's got the grapefruit spin, and I've got the lemon spin. I went with the orange bitters. Is that what you did today? Yeah, I did. So I did orange in yours. Okay. I did half orange, half aromatic in mine. Okay, cool. So mine's a little, will be just a little different. You can try it, obviously. And uh, what was the inspiration for this idea? Let me ask you real quickly before we start drinking this. As far as the Malort goes, yeah, like it was just a random thing. I just saw it, yeah, and I was like, I, I was at a wine and cheese place in St. Louis. We were going to see, I think, Rafe Williams' stand-up special. And we went in, and they had one bottle left. <laughs> and I texted Barrett, and I was like, dude, I want to buy this, but I don't want to be the only one drinking it. If I I know I'm coming on the podcast. We should do, like, a cocktail and, you know, try shots of it and see what it's about. And he's like, oh, absolutely, we'll do that. Yeah. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Ooh, pretty good. That's not bad. Pretty good. Yeah, it. Uh, the bitter's still there. Definitely. It is, but it is but it's not down tremendously. It is not as pronounced. Like yeah. the malort is not trampling all over. You need something with a stand-up profile of its own. Yeah. To do this, and I think that this works rather well. So this is the bitter end cocktail. We said it is Stiegel Radler. Barrett went with the lemon. I did the grapefruit, which is what it calls for. Lime juice. Obviously, Malort, and then stir and pour. I also added some bitters. I said he has got regular, I've got aromatics and orange, and he's got regular orange in his. Yeah. So, not bad. It drinks pretty smooth. The Malort plays nice with the, the citrus. I've also seen people make these with, because, you know, I wasn't really familiar with the overall mixed drink, because when you said get Rattler, I didn't know if you meant just like the Rattler brand drink, but there's also a mixed drink called Rattler. Too. Right. Uh, which is basically you use a German light beer with lemonade well, or that's what a I, lemon-based soda or grapefruit. Yeah, Rattlers, any, like, it's carbonated lemonade, but, like, the Brandt Stiegel would be a beer with lemonade. Right. Uh, I forget where I was. Oh, when we were, went to Greece last year, there was an Australian guy on board, and he was making shandies, and he, was, he would get uh, Mythos, and he would either get lemonade or he would get Sprite and mix the Mythos beer with it. And I try; they're pretty good. I do love Shandies. That's uh, which this was similar. Yeah, of it's course, it so. is. 
it's got a little more hop to it, a little more Definitely. punch to it. You know, if you look at it that way, um, I think it makes it more digestible. Because, like, I like hoppy beers. I like beers, like, on at least a three, usually, with hops, because I just like a little bite back. Yeah, if and you this, look at this drink that way, that's kind of how it plays. Yeah, it almost yeah, like almost like yeah, a very hoppy Rattler. Like if they made a Rattler that had hops in it, because you don't get, as I said, I don't get the the herbs so much as I just get the real intense Bitter bitterness. Yeah, but yeah, this makes it better, and it it just feels like a kind of a dry cocktail. It's it's almost wine esque, huh? Almost wine esque. Why? So if you've ever had uh like a real stiff Tom Collins, yeah, like that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's got. And I can see why this would play well with gin, too, because yeah. that's the base in it, Tom Collins' gin. Yeah, I had a, a Tom Collins whenever I went to um, Pensacola Beach the last time, I believe it was. And it had actually like a toasted, they actually used for the garnish, they used like a toasted cinnamon stick. Really? Yeah. Ooh, that's, that's different. It was a nice compliment. And then the, the actual physical like fruit garnish, they had like an orange slice on the yeah. side, too. Orange or lemon, typically, yeah. is going to be your traditional with that. Uh, it was pretty bitter, but... I enjoyed it, you know, something yeah. different. It was, it, I was literally on the beach outside of the Pensacola Pier drinking it. So, oh yeah, amidst a shark warning, <laughs> it, it's a good, it's a good thing to sit there and sip and smell the ocean. Exactly. Yeah, like you get that the sea, like it's a sea breeze type of drink. You can sit there and have that wafting, you know, that that combination, especially on the beach because you get that and like suntan oil and all the different, yeah, you know, those real pleasant vacation smells. Right. For sure. Yeah. So I'm. I mean, I didn't expect it to be bad, but I think I'm even a little bit more pleasantly surprised, especially if I look at it from the perspective, like I said, like a hoppy beer. Buddy, I'm a it's fan, really yeah. If, yeah. If, you sold, if you told me this was a hoppy... You're already done with yours, damn. Yeah, dude, I killed this thing. It is, it's tasty. It is imminently drinkable. Yeah. So I, I definitely recommend. Yeah, you can get uh, lost in the sauce real quick on this stuff. I oh, yeah, yeah. This is, again, <laughs> yeah, this is just right up there with... And I think probably adding the, the sweet and lime to it yeah, might have taken a little bit of the edge off of it too. Sure, but I knew I had to have something because I was concerned that that was going to be one of those things that yeah, this is just going to be disastrous, and I will have wasted my money, and Barrett will have wasted his money. Oh man, I'm actually pretty presently uh, surprised. With this. Yeah, dude, I could we so we each had about like a we made this in a pitcher, and in even in a the flower vase to be fla- it's a flower vase, yeah, <laughs> to be specific. <laughs> He told me it was for display only, but I had to do like. But you made it practical. Yeah, we we did. We put it into service. It's very good. Now, like, if you can see this, I'm going to drink from the navel of Freddy Krueger in Halloween tradition. So. Yeah, I didn't realize that was a thing. What is? I think it's in. Is it three where he's got all the faces coming out of his chest? I think it is. Uh, in fact, one thing I'd like to tackle at some t- some point for the podcast is. I got those deals on the uh, Blu-ray packs of all the Friday the 13th, as well as the Nightmare on Elm Streets, which we had this conversation last time. I mean, right. I guess I think Nightmare on Elm Street is like the strongest franchise overall, because even the bad ones are pretty watchable. Um, and then they, there's at times it leans into the campiness a little bit more so and embraces it, which I'm a huge fan of camp and movies in general, particularly horror. So since we're tying this all back into possibly the, the granddaddy Mac Number one, I would say this is the initial premiere horror movie. Yeah. Or prestige horror movie. Yeah. I mean, and and we'll talk about it whenever we split over into the intro of the film. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, certainly The Exorcist is 
one of the first movies with the pomp and circumstance with the moniker of scariest movie of all time that I feel like a lot of things were right timing, um, source material, you know, we'll get into all that, but, uh, it definitely delivers on its promise and then beyond and the scuttlebutt that was behind it, uh, before it even had its, uh, major release to the masses. So, yeah. uh, we will catch you guys on the other side of the break here and things from here on out will be audio only. So, and so because we want to drive that attention again back toward the film, and we want you folks to actually watch the film. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the, the centerpiece is not my ugly mug. The centerpiece is <laughs> one of the most mind, for that time, you know, the most time tested horror movies that ever was. It's still to this day. Like I, yeah. I watch it every you know maybe five years or so, and it is still stands up as being absolutely terrifying and just an uneasy experience for sure hello everybody and welcome back to the ati podcast we're here for episode 94 now and we have another third time guest with us to help us achieve this task of course i'm barrett here and we've got joey rackavan back on the show joey thanks for coming back to the show sir what is up you hormone laced chicken breasts well that is a very accurate description at least for me and i'm sure for some of the audience so we're going to get into it uh, today with the Exorcist watch alone momentarily, but we got a few things that you guys are going to see uh, on the production elements of things. So it's not going to be video riddled like it is in the past because we want the focus today to be on the Exorcist from 1973, a, a film that we talked about before we started recording, Joey, that's stood the test of time in our opinion. Absolutely. It is one of those that to this day, until my children are grown, I'm not going to show them this movie or <laughs> offer to show them this movie because it is upsetting. Yeah, 100%. Let's just talk about the format today so everybody gets kind of accustomed to what's happening. So you guys are hearing our voices right now. This is pretty much going to be the uh, majority of the show because, again, this is Watch Along style today. Uh, we're going to have some video cut-ins here up on the forefront of the episode just to show you guys uh, kind of what we're doing today, because some of the companion pieces that we have, and that's a mixed drink that we've made today, and we'll get into the specifics of that and the ingredients and so on on the video feeds, uh, but whenever you hear the audio version of this podcast, it'll be extracted into that format as well. So, We are going to, real quickly, just kind of give you some of the news and notes on The Exorcist before we start watching the film beforehand, because we certainly want you guys to hear AR reactions and things that we're pointing out as we're watching it. So, to get us started, I'm going to start with the synopsis for The Exorcist. Now, if you've never seen this film, first off, what the fuck have you been doing with your life? <laughs> yeah, you're talking about, this. this is... You've been listening to this podcast and you haven't at some point stopped and listened to The Exorcist. That's sort of required as much as you talk about metal and hardcore yeah. and, you know, horror and stuff and you haven't watched The Exorcist. What sure. are you doing? What are you doing with We've your We've explicitly talked about The Exorcist at least two, if not three times on the podcast up to this point as well. And it has been a discussion topic. You know, whenever we did our favorite horror movies on the first season, it was on my list. Uh, we talked about it then. Uh, we talked about on Joey's first episode, we went deep into Exorcist lore in the books, and that's why I thought Joey would be a perfect person to talk about this movie. And, of course, I wanted to talk about this movie because it's, you know, anybody, anytime anybody asks me what my favorite movie of all time is, yeah, option 1A is The Exorcist, option 1B is Old Boy. Those two movies, depending on my mood, are the ones that I go by default. Is my favorite movies of all time. It has to be movies that shake me in some way, have plot twists, 
or touch the nerve of possible real knife uh, scenarios. So, but I'm going to talk about the synopsis, and then as we're watching the film, I think I'll start to reveal why this movie has struck a chord with me and lasted with me over the years. So the synopsis real quickly for The Exorcist that was released in 1973. When young Reagan, which is Linda Belair's character, starts acting odd, levitating, speaking in tongues, her worried mother, which is played by Ellen Burstyn, seeks medical help, only to hit a dead end. A local priest, played by Jason Miller, thinks the girl may be seized by the devil. The priest makes a request to perform an exorcism, and the church sends an expert, which is played by Max von Schadow, to help with the difficult job. This film was originally released by WB December 26th, the day after Christmas of 1973, a runtime of 112 minutes, uh, theatrical that is. Today we are going to be watching the director's cut, of course, and uh, we're going to get into why when we start watching the film as well. Uh, original budget for the film was $12 million. Box office initial was $193 million, So It's a good ROI, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Tremendous financial success. And you also have to consider, at the time, this is an R-rated movie in the early 70s. So for it to have this type of box office is unprecedented, without question. Even present day, really. Yeah. And a lot of that, and we'll get into that a little bit, but it comes to this movie being divisive. Sure. In the way it it's viewed through different lenses. Like it depends if you're viewing it through the evangelical Christian lens. Right. If you're viewing it from more of the view of Catholicism or you're viewing it as just as somebody who's a fan of cinema or somebody who's specifically a fan of the horror genre, there's all manner of different opinions about this movie that go back longer than either of us have even been alive. Without question. And we're talking things about thousands of years at the very least, tens of thousands in some instances, that the themes that this movie touches on. So we are going to, obviously we've leaned into the fact that this movie is very profitable, but let's talk about the fact that it, it's lifetime bo box office we must, must address, which is still a climbing number, is present day $441.3 million. And we were just talking before we started recording today that it's back in theaters again for you know Halloween this year and the fact that it's got its 50th year anniversary, which is in part why we are covering it on the podcast today too. So It's a huge landmark, especially for this type of a movie. How many other horror movies can you name that were made in 1973? Yeah, I mean, off the top of, the, top of your head, probably... Little to none. And the importance of this film, once again, we could talk about, you know, it's not a fair fight, too, though, whenever we're using that example. I mean, we're talking about critically acclaimed, one of the best movies of all time in general, regardless of genre. You do have some that in looking at this year that they do stand up that still have a following or still have had, you know, modern day cachet. The original Wicker Man did come out in 1973. Sure. And that movie, I absolutely adore that movie. It's got a it yeah. has a very bright shining place in my heart. The Crazies, the West Craven, the Crazies yeah. came out yeah. in the in 73. Uh you have some other ones. Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain came out. That's not really a horror yeah. movie. That's a surrealist. Oh, God. But It's a great movie. Yeah, there, there's a couple other things. I mean, we don't want to get too far in depth with it. But yeah, there are some that happen at this same time. As far as towering over all of them, the, the movie that casts the biggest shadow out of all of those has to be The Exorcist. Yeah, and we talked about the fact that this is one of the most profitable horror movies of all time. Tale, of course, is based off of the book, and that book was based off of real life events so 
real quickly, we're going to touch on that. The book, of course, is by William Peter Blatty, and he also has a cameo in the film and producing credits, of course. The book was critically acclaimed initially, but not a financial success originally, and it really didn't become popular until the movie's success uh, from that standpoint. So this was at the time and window, uh, and I think that even happened up until, at least until the 2000s. Prominently, books would be released, and they were critically acclaimed, but not necessarily initial financial successes. And studios were looking for original springboards for source materials, so they would buy up the rights to these books and then turn them into films. And this was kind of, at least in my memory, I'm sure there was better examples before this, but this is definitely a prominent one early on that this happened, where WB had the rights to turn this into a film. And uh, therefore, you know, it went on to have the success that it did. But the book actually benefited from the film treatment more so. And often it's kind of in reverse, you know, films benefit from the book treatments. So things like the Hunger Games, the Harry Potter books, you know, those are books that you can point back to more recently that were successful books initially and then went on to have successful film franchises. They have too. what you call a built-in audience. Right. Just because of, because I've, I've read, and I've read the book more than I've seen, like more often, more frequently, I'll say that. I've read it more frequently than I've watched the movie. That's a book that I revisit fairly frequently. I own it in digital format. I have, I, we talked about before, I do have an original uh, night pressing, or original, not pressing, original uh, print run of it, a hardback. And I've read it. It's a very abused copy <laughs> that I have that I love a lot. As far as, a, I couldn't say necessarily that this had a built-in audience. This just had... Like even the promotional material that came out with it was like they were just building upon the bad hoodoo that this movie generates. Like the the overall uneasy feeling that that this movie just seems to work in. It that's the I talked about it before. This this movie paints in a palette that is pitch black. One hundred percent. It is the it is deadly serious the from the word go. Even the innocent things are there for you to see them as a contrast right. to to the perversion that happens with this possession. So there's a lot of you know taboo things that happen throughout the film, which we'll lean into as we're watching it. But before we get to all that, of course, I want to address kind of its critical acclaim up front as well. So critically, this was well received, even with all the controversies that we're talking and touching on right now. We'll just talk about, you know, it's easier to talk about in retrospect now because it's had the benefit of 50 years. But again, back to our point that this has aged well. Uh, on IMDb, this is rated at an 8.1, which is a great rating for IMDb. And we talked about the IMDb ratings actually on the Douglas Wicker episode more recently where we covered Evil Dead for this Halloween month. So, Especially and- for a 50-year-old movie because there's been a lot of time for trolls. Right. For everyone who has decided to sit down and be like, well, I don't see what's I don't so like great. that. I don't actually, I don't see actually. what's so great about it. It's just a mi- Ugh. Crawl up your own ass and die. 100%. <laughs> so, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which is one of my least favorite review sites, but I do look at it for scale at least. 78% on Rotten Tomatoes for this film. That's ridiculous in my opinion, but whatever. We'll move on to some other ones. 87% audience scores, so that's more like it. Uh, 80% of Google users like this movie. A 4.0 on Letterboxd, which is really good for Letterboxd. And then four, uh, it is, this is another stat, Joey, that I found out that I thought was very interesting that I wanted to include because we have to consider the importance of what I'm about to say present day. 
This is the fifth most searched for movie on Amazon in its history. So think about that. Well, Amazon, probably the biggest online retailer present day, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Has they they've got it? They've got the market cornered on online retail. So for this to be as an quote unquote extreme or divisive movie that it is, and be the fifth most searched movie on Amazon ever is incredible. Yeah. Now keep in mind, this is even from modern statistics still being done. So you know that the first four are step bro porn. <laughs> yeah, and Brandon Stewart definitely has it in his search history. So. Absolutely. <laughs> he looked for the exorcist. Oh no, step bro, what are you doing with that pea soup? To lean back into the success and um, you know critical acclaim of this movie, this is the first horror movie ever nominated for an Academy Award as well. Which is crazy to consider. Yeah, I mean, there are movies, you gotta cons- think about, there are movies that came before this that were, they were expressly, specifically horror. Was it for makeup? No, I'm saying, like, picture. I don't, oh, for this is for actual best picture? Yes, yes. I know, because I knew that uh, Dick Smith's effects work had, I believe, got a, a nomination. Well, Linda Blair got a nomination. Linda Blair got a nomination. For supporting. But the actual effects work, because a lot of people don't realize when you watch this that the the whole time that Max von Sydow is on screen, right. Max von Sydow is a young he's he's, he's forty four yeah he's forty four he's that is old age makeup Correct. people don't realize that's the most natural old age makeup that you'll ever see I agree. and it's one of the earlier examples of it being used in this context where you have real close ups and real tight visuals with it Max von Shadow to be fair though is that guy for like twenty plus years constantly looked 45 well yeah it's like charles <laughs> yeah it's like charles bronson if you look at charles yes. bronson even in like the dirty dozen yeah charles bronson looks like he's 50 he's probably 30 years old in that yeah. movie so uh, another big accolade of this film is the fact that it was voted into the national film registry in 2010 so again for it to be as divisive as a film that it is that's quite the accomplishment to to be considered so these are kind of all of our spoiler free and um, non-watch along related things that we wanted to touch on before we get into the actual watch along portion of this film because of course this is about a two hour long watch along so any other facts that we have uh, regarding the film we'll try and litter in to the film as it goes along uh, unless there's anything else, Joey, to touch on that you feel like we should before we start watching the film. In the making of stuff, I was a bit of a completist nerd about this, so I ended up watching the move, the actual documentary that Fried, that William Friedkin did, where it's basically a long-form interview of him talking about The Exorcist. Plus, I bought Mark Kermode's... Uh, book that he did for the bbc which is a long form it's like a 150 page essay on the exorcist the lead up the making of so i have fairly extensive notes but those are things that i can save for when we are in the midst of the movie i mean well, you're bringing up a good point too real quick that i want to lean into and the fact the reason that i i chose joey for this film in particular is the fact that he's Obviously, one of the smartest friends that I have in general, if you guys have ever listened to this podcast. So, you know, I think it's always good to have somebody with that type of intelligence on the show to educate everybody that listens. But secondarily, on this particular subject, actually read several of the books, the novels, which I have not done at all, which I feel like a bad fan for not doing so. And then also extensively seen films throughout the franchise. So he's a very good resource for this watch along. And I know he's a guy who takes, you know, the actual research and looking into things in advance of actually preparation for a podcast uh, that I think is required and, and, and worth the listener's viewpoints. 
uh, as well. So I was very happy to have Joey on board for this episode too. So I just wanted to mention that up front. So I appreciate that. Now I want to say this. You said you haven't read the book and you feel the book is the book. The movie is the movie. If you're a fan of the movie, you're a fan of a piece of cinema and history of the horror genre. And as a steward of someone who loves the horror genre, now I don't ask that everybody, there's a lot of the golden bow in, in the wicker man. I didn't read the golden bow. I'm not going to read that. That's, that's an old, that, that, that's got a lot to do with old magic and stuff. And I have no interest in reading it. Stewardship of the genre for film is film itself. I just happen to have a very particular interest in this, this movie and the subject. So I don't necessarily feel like you're doing any one of disservice. The book is very closely adapted. And so that, that makes it, you're not, I don't want to say you're missing much. There are certain elements because we discussed this a little bit pre he does in the book. It's a little bit more got sort of a whodunit frame to it. Almost an Agatha, like a metaphysical Agatha Christie. Yeah. Which is something that's recurrent through William Peter Blatty's books. This one, the, uh, what's called the ninth configuration or twinkle, twinkle killer cane is the name of the book. Or you have even Legion, which is the is three. There's very metaphysical, hyper religious turns, and William Peter Blatty's individual contextualization of those things as they fall in. I just I find it fascinating. Not everybody's gonna find it fascinating. Not everybody's gonna ha- want to listen to you know that level of discourse on that subject because it's especially with religion, it's not for everyone. Right. It's, it's, you know, you're either going to buckle in and you're going to plow through the pages. There, there's a section in the middle of Legion where it is just from the point of view of one of the doctors in that hospital. And it is a slog to get through, but you have to, to get to the next points in the novel. And right. there's no skipping it because he does pepper things in there that are important for you to know about. Right. But, not necessary for you, so don't feel like you're doing yourself or anyone else a disservice by not going out and every book that's adapted for, or every movie that's adapted from a book, going and reading it. Go and read Jaws. The novel is terrible. The novel is <laughs> awful. It's so bad. I don't know how they got to that point. They focus more on Matt Hooper having an affair with the sheriff's wife than they do about the fucking shark. The shark's the whole point of the movie. Right, right. It's not called Matt Hooper dicks down the sheriff's <laughs> wife. It's called fucking Jaws. <laughs> yeah, see, so those are the type of liberties, like, whenever film is being adapted from, you know, novelizations or whatever the case is, that, you know, those are the type of liberties, in my opinion, that unless it's just very contingent on plot points, that I never have a problem with. So, But Joey will be able to point out a few of those things while we're watching. The only thing I wanted to cover real quickly, if we can, before we start watching this, what was your first fascination or hearing of The Exorcist, Joey, that you can remember? Honestly, this is tied to early in my life, and it, it has to do with my dad. Like that, The most talk I ever heard about The Exorcist was from my dad. And he talked about... And I don't know, the, I can't test the veracity. This is First off, this happened 50 years ago. The real life right. story happened earlier than that, like in 1949 is when Correct. this happened. Yeah. Before that, That's before my dad was even born, because he was born in 53. But 
that that lore is so baked into especially the St. Louis and especially if you were Lutheran or you were Catholic growing up in that time, there was such a huge focus on, you know, the devil being very real and right. you know, it wasn't until the fifth like the fifties, sixties where you started seeing that viewed more as an abstraction. But he was raised with the devil as a very real presence in right. his life. I'm not religious in any way, but he very legitimately feared that movie. He would like he watched it. He swore off of it though. But right. he would he'd tell me, You're not ever gonna watch it while I'm in the house. Yeah. Like he said, I don't care if you watch it. I know like I know that it's just it's it's make believe and all that, but you're not gonna watch it while I'm in the house. Yeah. And I I literally almost had to wait until he was he was he had passed away before I watched it. I, I watched it when probably in my late teen years with my friend John McCarver. Mm-hmm. But friend of the show, by the way. Yeah, yeah, John's good John's good, good filler. Friend. Yes. All that talk of it, I think that's what really I read the book before I talked about I had the book I read the book before I ever saw the movie because I got that I bought the book when I was like twelve at the Kirkwood Book Fair. So that's my earliest that's cool. memory is aside of hearing my dad talk about it, my actual knowledge of the text and knowledge of the content comes from having read it read it first and seeing it in my head and then seeing what is effectively William Friedkin's picture perfect depiction. Yeah. Of the text. Now there's things that I mean he has to change and he tightened he tightened it up. He yeah. did. If you want to boil down the raw essence of what the exorcist is, William Friedkin does it in the movie and does justice to the book in a way that so many adaptations don't. Yeah. The spirit of it is there and the the that the love of the text right. is there. Right. What's your first real memory of it? Well, we're going to have very similar stories as far as that's concerned. So my dad is the one who made me aware of it as far as I can remember. And again, our fathers were similar in age as we are. Uh, my, my father, seven years behind yours, born in 1960, a St. Louis native himself, coming from a Catholic family. His aunts in particular was a devout Catholic who helped kind of raise him and was kind of a grandmother figure to me. Uh, Aunt Mary shots out uh, to wherever you are in the afterlife. But um, so there was a taboo behind it for those reasons in and of itself. Uh, Secondarily, again, my dad kind of dictated similar things, or at least my mom did. So I grew up in a, and we've talked about this on the show before, but a very strict evangelical Christian household. And so there was a lot of like boundaries that you didn't cross. And watching The Exorcist was one of those. However, my dad had heard, had seen it as a teenager, was aware of it, and my dad had some secular visitations to the world, if you will. So he was in and out of church, what they call in the evangelical lifestyle is uh, backsliding. So he was black, backslidden, quote-unquote, at the time, and he, I guess, felt, you know, he saw my fascination and interest in horror, especially I was starting to visit old movies and enjoy them and have an appreciation for them, such as the Evil Dead franchise, which we covered earlier on in the show. Yeah, I remember uh, watching uh, Grindhouse at yeah. your dad's house with him. <laughs> yeah. So my dad was a horror movie fan, just as I am, and turned me on a lot of various horror movies. And this was one of them. I was in my preteen years, I believe, when I first saw it. I just remember him telling me stories about, and again, take this for what it's worth, he and my mom rented it on VHS, watched it together early on in their relationship and like i think some of the fixtures in the house turned in turned on on their own allegedly and so that always kind of creeped me out 
knowing that in advance. I watched it myself. Was definitely creeped out by the movie, especially the way I was brought up. But, um, you know, things didn't magically turn on while I watched it. So a part of me was like, okay, this isn't as bad as they say it is. But I lingered on some scenes and shots of the movie. When I first watched it, it was the director's cut version. So, and uh, we're going to point out those differences while we're watching it, why that's important. But uh, again, yeah. So a very profound movie on me and my movie watching experience, my entry level. I would say that this is like my gateway drug into being a cinephile. Well, initially, I think that it's got a lot of merit as something that would be, you know, something you would see and connect with it having an actual merit as a aside of just being a horror film just the way it's shot yeah the way it's very and the thing is it's very naturalist it's it's doesn't play by the same rules as a lot of horror does where when they're wanting to, they they do a lot of don't bore us get to the chorus just they want to rush 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 right, right. this it's almost worse because it's like it's the difference between listening to something like Skeletal Remains or something like that. Like something that's fast and thrashy. It's still got some evil, you know, vibes to it. Right. Or listening to Sun or listening to Old Boris. Right. And the dread. Just the dread that sure. this deliberate. I mean, because yeah. it is not fast paced. It is just plodding along. You know it's going to sure. get you. You know at some point that it's going to get, like, something's going to have a profound negative emotional effect on you. Right. And like I said, it it paints in shades of black. It's so pitch dark, and there's no humor. There's From the moment it starts, there's no relief in this movie. It just gets worse. Everything, it's so, everything in it is just so deliberate. And even the things that you don't think are deliberate. They're there to cause some sort of weird, at least undertone. Yeah, they they, they cause some sort of weird feeling. Some weird. They, they have these weird chordal, these little dissonances that you see that make things unsettling. It, the opening or the sequence when they're in uh, the Middle East and yeah. there's all those weird random images. The man with the cloud. We'll get to that. And again, you're gonna have to watch the director's yeah. cut to get most of what we're talk referring to here. Yeah. Even those, it sets up very naturalist pacing, and it gets like that just slow plotting feeling. Just it it eats at you. It's more it's more profound than some, than some slasher jumping out and swinging a machete at you. It is right. It's a fear. For the soul of the child that's in that movie. Absolutely. It's a fear for the souls of the people who are being corrupted having to deal with, the with, the, with this situation and this this possessing entity. So one last thing I want to mention before we get to the watch-along thing. Of course, if you've ever seen the Exorcist poster, uh, kind of the profound imagery that is the Exorcist, the poster itself is ominous. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but it's a reference to... a. Rene Marguerite painting. A Magritte, yeah. Yeah. And um, we've actually talked with Ian Fisher, director who did Magritte Moment as a short film. And so that's why that name might sound familiar to you now, which we'll have Ian on again at our year-end film review. Uh, Ian has agreed to come back and do the show, director. 
and looking forward to having him back on the show too. But yeah, so that was kind of interesting. That's something I didn't know in my previous knowledge of the movie until I was doing a little bit more research on the movie, and I thought it was kind of a weird happenstance. Some of the guests that we've had and the material that they've covered too. It is interesting to see. I learned something strange about the Magritte thing. This is separate, but I used I worked with a guy, and he said his grandma used to call. There, apparently, there's a very famous painting by Magritte of a woman smoking, and they she used to call cigarettes a Magritte. That's interesting. Like you ever like in the years when I used to smoke, I'd be on the cig. I heard them referred to as all different kind of things. Sure. If you were in St. Louis, especially, you'd ask someone would come up and ask you to bum a square. Yeah. My the guy that I worked with, he'd his grandma would say, "Yeah, give me one of those Magritte's," yeah. and she'd point at her cigarette pack. Like, it's such a weird thing. Like, I don't know, these weird Culturally, little echoes and stuff. Yeah. So uh, we can talk. I got one more thing a little bit before because there were some different directors that were considered for The Exorcist. I don't know if you got a chance to look at this or not, Barrett. So Stanley Kubrick was one of them. Sure. Peter uh, William Peter Blatty passed on that because he had an option. He wanted, because Kubrick wanted to produce. So right. he wanted to stay as a producer on the film. Blatty uh, had no previous experience directing films, though, too. Arthur Penn. You might know Arthur Penn because he did uh, The Miracle Worker, Bonnie and Clyde, Alice's Restaurant, The Missouri Breaks, which is a fantastic western with Jack Nicholson and uh, Marlon Brando in it. It is Marlon Brando playing absolutely unhinged. It is well worth the watch. Uh, Mike Nichols, John Cassavetes. Yeah, John Cassavetes is a great director. Yeah, excellent. So all these people ended up... So Blatty respected Friedkin, though. Because he was somebody who would speak his mind, and he wouldn't compromise on vision. He'd had a, a previous interaction with him where he had, uh, Blatty had written a script, and Friedkin didn't like it, and he came right up to Blatty and told him what a piece of shit he thought his script was, <laughs> right to his face. Yeah. Which, if you ever watch anything with William Friedkin, that does not in any way whatsoever shock me. Because right. William Friedkin... Gets right to the point. We're going to get to uh, some examples of that while we're watching the film, too. All right, so folks, uh, we're going to be counting you down here momentarily to the live feed, and we will be giving you time signatures throughout on the film. So bear with us momentarily while we transition over into the watch-along. All right, so we are going to count you folks in on 3, 2, 1 from the WB... Uh, so that's Warner Brothers Pictures emblem on the front. And we will simultaneously give you timestamps, or I should say periodically, we'll give you timestamps as to where we're at in the film. Now, this is a digital copy of the director's cut, so that's important to mention because different cuts of films, of course, have different run times. Uh, so this one has a total run time of 212 minutes approximately. 212. 33 is what it looks like. Yeah, so that, I'm sure that that's going to include uh, so after credits and, and what have you. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, we are on this digital copy 13 seconds in. But what I like to do is start people at the actual emblem. Uh, so there's already eerie music starting to set in. And uh, we'll count you down 3, 2, 1 in just that pacing. And we'll start the film. So are you ready, Joey? I am ready. My notes are fired up. All right. So we are going to take this some bitch head on. So we are three, two, one, play. All right. Warner Brothers emblem fades away. Opens up at a shot on the house, I believe. 
We're on that corner window. Yep. So one thing to point out immediately on this film is the fact that uh, the sound design is pretty incredible. Very intense, especially in headphones. And I have never watched it with headphones, so this will be a first time for me as well. I was tell- We were talking earlier, and I told Barrett, I have watched several of the Halloween movies in headphones just because I was on a trip, <laughs> and I didn't want to... Like It's fun to blare it, but you don't necessarily want to do that in a hotel room. So we just had the title credits fade away to uh, the opening title credits, that is, and that's the Exorcist name card. We have the call to prayer going. We're at 110. And this opens up in Iraq, actually, on the director's cut, which does not happen on the theatrical cut, I believe, or at least a little, little to none. This is something that William Friedkin argued had to be there. He was, Him and Blatty, when Blatty initially wrote the script, he was uh, not real keen on including this scene. Somebody in another studio in the studio had told him that it didn't play and it had nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but it gives you context Correct. for everything else. So northern Iraq is the setting, and it's important to mention that U.S. tensions with Iraq were at an all-time high at this time uh, in the se- early 70s, and they did not like the U.S. in general. So Freakin actually had to hire a British crew to do the shooting and also had to offer them teaching the Iraqis some of their film techniques to make this happen. So kind of an interesting thing to note. As far as this, the actual archaeological scene, though, this is pretty much exactly what they would be doing. This is not inaccurate. And the reason behind the accuracy for how this looks and what's occurring at this time... That was our first introduction to Lancaster Marin. has to do with the fact that William Peter Blatty was stationed with the Air Force in Beirut at a time when they were doing actual archaeological digs. So he got to witness And so firsthand. he got to witness this firsthand. In fact, Lancaster Marin is a tribute to... I'll find his name here in my notes. Uh, Gerald Lancaster Harding, who was a, general, a British archaeologist who was involved in preservation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Ah, okay. Yeah. So here we have the initial... Discovery. Max Van Shadow, of course. Yeah. He's looking this at... Father Marin. So, this is an anachronism. They point that out. That's a St. Christopher's medallion. We'll see that here in the film again. And tie two characters together as well, so let's yeah. put that in your pocket for now. Yeah. The St. Christopher's medallion, they say specifically, is not of the same era, not of the same period as the rest of this dig. They don't ever really go on to explain it other than it being sort of a, an omen. One thing we need to point out, too, there's going to be a plethora, and this is an introduction now, of clay figures throughout the film. And it's uh, they're kind of uh, foreboding. Some of the soundscapes are going to be used. It's yes. going to detail that as well. Clay figures, clay sculpture. 
one thing I got to mention out the out the gate here too. 4K restoration. We're watching, and I have never seen this film in this quality. And it's it is incredible. It, it is so. It is just crystal clear. The it's film got that grain. Film grain. I want. Yeah. It still. Yeah. It still looks like it was definitely shot on film. It feels very much real. Well, it's got a documentary. The way the camera moves, it has a very documentary look to it. That's something that you can credit to the cinematographer in this movie. Definitely. That's someone who's worked with Friedkin. He worked with him on this. He did Sorcerer with him. And prior to this, he actually would... Uh, his cinematographer actually would film... He was a he was a documentary filmmaker, and he was known specifically right. for going into, like, protest areas and war-torn zones yeah. and, and getting this footage, this type of very right in the middle of it nitty gritty type footage if you watch the beginning of sorcerer there's a scene with a car explosion that you can tell his background is that type of filmmaking he shoots it very much like a film like a documentary filmmaker would so at about the 450 mark, I want to mention real quickly, you saw Father Marin, Max von Shadow's character, taking some pills. He clearly has uh, rattled nerves from, one would assume, PTSD or some prior experience. Um, kind of the small white tablets that you've seen accustomed to fil- in film at this time. So typically what that is an indicator of is nitroglycerin. So it's indicating he has a heart condition. Here's some foreshadowing. Right about 537 or 557, 558. The man with the milky eye, you'll see that shadowed later on in Reagan during the possession when her eyes roll up into her head. That was very intentional, plus them by the brazier where it's glowing hot like the embers and the fires of hell. Here we are, so we're in the scene now where they're in an actual archaeological office. St. Joseph's the medallion. You want to notice the clock behind Father Marin as well. Yes. While he's examining the exhibits and pieces he's found. We're right here. The clock stopped. Yep. And he looks to notice it himself. And he was actually holding the, uh, was that Pazuzu's the, head? Yeah, the, the Pazuzu statue, the, the figurine, the head yeah. that he found. In the book, I wish you didn't have to go is my heart has a wish that you would not go. Which Aerogram took directly yes, from the did. book for the title of an yes, excellent fucking did. post-rock album. I brought that up before. Top but five. Yeah, it is right up there. It's up there with some of the M83 stuff, some mm-hmm. of the Explosions of the Sky stuff. And it's got very gorgeous Scottish-inflected vocals that just Aerogram make it so Aerogram is a band charming. that I consider to be a... Uh, Hallmark in our friendship. There's one band that Joey and I listen to that we both love tremendously. Very shared. They're very much pointing out the spirituality of the Arabic culture at this point. It begins with the call to prayer. Right after we right. pan off of the street in uh, Georgetown, we go to Iraq where you hear that call to prayer. And you see several times throughout the day, they pray five times per day. And you see that demonstrated sort of almost as an indicator of the passage of time. So we're in the bizarre scene right now of him walking through Father Marin. Speaking of bizarre, 
Moroccan Bazaar, very underrated scent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they still had very it. Very much is. My wife actually found an obscure candle that was still uh, out there like five, ten years after they discontinued and bought it for me one year, which was an amazing gift. I burnt that candle the fuck up. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Greatest There's candle certain... scent ever. Where you when you go like and it's there's a lot of lending from the Arabic cultures. It's another foreshadowing moment. Yeah, so about uh, we'll say about the what is that five six forty six forty mark six forty five the woman in the carriage dressed all in black. Just to give you guys a quick time stamp as to where we're at right now, we are approaching the. Oh, seven, excuse me, nine, nine minute mark. Oh, excuse us. So Barrett. anytime we said seven, it was actually yeah, or six, it was eight. Yeah, Barrett and I both like Barrett's wearing his glasses, but yeah, we're visually deficient. Yeah. The drudgery of time at this point, folks. Yeah. We're two guys around forty that uh, eyes haven't been kind to them even from birth. So, so here we are at the ruins now at the nine about nine thirty. Marin's father Marin is out there on his own and here's where we have the actual sound design starting to come in sounds of the wind sounds of locusts the locusts are calling back something that they don't even mention in this of earlier times in Lancaster Marin's history as a fictional you know priest and, a, and an exorcist the dogs. dogs are fighting. This yeah. is another very key thing to yeah. take note of. All these so- these sounds. And now you get the full reveal of the Pazuzu. The statue. statue. Which these things are gnarly. The Pazuzu statue has a snake for a penis. That winds yeah. up its leg. It's a very bizarre statue. It's a Mesopotamian demon. Yes, so Pazuzu is a very important demon to mention. We're getting a cut into Georgetown now. Uh, Pazuzu is a very important demon to mention uh, real quickly, just his background. So he's the bringer of Northwest Wind. Why is that important? Because he brings plague with him, disease and famine. So Pazuzu is one of the more powerful demons in uh, lore, we should say. And that's why he's a very foreboding figure. Yes. So where does he rate against Payman? Are you asking me personally or literally? But in the hierarchy, Payman's a king of hell, isn't he? I believe so. Now, uh, there's not just one king of hell. Boy, it's really hard for me to to make this comment right now, but uh, I don't know. Hereditary just hit me so randomly, and uh, with the actual personification of Paimon or Payman. However you want to pronounce it. I really enjoyed that. I prefer Pie Man, because Pie makes me happy. If you're getting happy, though, and, and this makes you sad, this you would I would say that this makes more of an impact on you, though. So, oh, this has always made Pazuzu. the most impact. Something we're going to point out. This is a very early example of this. You will see this many, many times. First off, you have Reagan's window open. 11.54. At yeah. the 11.55. Yeah, almost... Right at the 12-minute mark, Reagan's window is open. And so we are inside of Reagan's home, of course, with yeah. her mother. So a thing that they do several times, and it, once you see it, you can't really unsee it, 
But Friedkin make, made this decision. It's a very conscious decision that he made that when you are seeing when you're gonna when you see someone react, he will show you them reacting to it before you see what it is they're reacting to. They always push in on the person coming in the room. So any of the big disturbances, you see them push in on the person opening the door and them responding to it before you see what they're responding to. So now so, we're approaching the 13-minute mark, and let's talk about the discussion that they're having, Joey. So they're talking about here. she's woke up and she's heard uh, scratching up in the attic. So if you follow it back... When we say she, that's Ellen Bernstein. Yeah. yeah. Chris the, McNeil. Yeah, the Chris McNeil character. And right now we just saw at... Uh, what was that mark? About 12... 13. Or 13, 25, yeah. Approximately, we actually saw the author... William Peter Blatty. Yeah, as a cameo, talking to the director. There's uh, our first shot of... Father Karen. Father Karras. Or Karras. David Karras, Jason Miller's character. Yeah. You see, so we... I want to talk about the scene in Reagan's room real quick. You do see the window open, and the wind is very much breezing in yeah. to the wind, indicating that Pazuzu is already a presence in this home. Between that and the discussion of the scratching that she's hearing, right, right, you know, the, this sort of infestation, because rat, if you're hearing rats, what's the thing that we talked about? Bring her a plague, right? Correct. So we associate rats specifically black plague with the plague yeah the black rat ratus ratus was considered to be a plague bringer as well or plague carrier so it's a natural parallel they don't ever bother to explain it but these are things you you sort of see where people can make their own inferences of these things well i think friedkins as a director as many other directors we could point out in the history of cinema that requires a certain intelligence from his audience too he doesn't spoon feed you things, right. and as you watch these, you start seeing more and more little parallels to these things. We have just some beautiful shots of Georgetown, some beautiful shots of different churches and buildings and institutions and you know colleges at this you know in this area. You know, we have. Chris McNeil descending these very tall winding steps already. So we're having and some cuts we... to continuity, her movement throughout the scene. We're first introduced to the theme of The Exorcist here. The Michael Oldfield tubular bells. Yep, at uh, about the 1530 mark or so, 1538 now. Friedkin said specifically, because he had all sorts of different people he wanted to score this movie at the time, you know, including people like Lalo Sh- Schifrin, you know, very important names to uh, cinematography and you know, movie music at the time. But he found this piece by Michael Oldfield. Back to Father Karras again as yeah. Ellen's yeah, character walks by. 
introduction to him him sort of being counseled counseling or counseling they don't show specifically so we should mention very quickly as quickly as i can that ellen bernstein's character chris mcneil is actually a famed hollywood actress well they're not in hollywood currently but uh they're on location yeah right and they're in a home uh, her daughter reagan uh there's going to be some mentions here in the background you'll see where there's some like tabloid coverage you start to understand the dynamic because you don't notice a father in home that's because she's in the midst of a divorce at the moment which adds context to the character of reagan and uh, some of the premonitions that she's having some of the things that initially end up getting blamed on the divorce so her some of her behavior they initially especially in the book they sort of attribute to this being products of a child from a broken home lashing out but right. when you see but when you see her acting there's nothing to indicate there's no sort of rebellion there's no no right. sort of change in behavior that would indicate you know this sudden swing we get the feeling that Reagan is a, a child too is a very playful child and uh has a you know positive home environment uh her and her mother almost friends the banter and uh, exchanges back and forth that you see introductory in the film so here we are if we want to think about this in this way right now we are in this sort of subterranean mode we now we're at the almost the 18 minute mark exactly of father Karras coming up from the subway steps right behind an old coke machine which is probably right next to a cigarette machine yeah probably yeah you can buy Lucky Strikes and Chesterfields. <laughs> an old altar boy. I'm a Catholic from the homeless man. Can you can you help an old altar boy? I'm a Catholic. That's, That's how you know I'm a Catholic. Too. So he's actually, though, he's traveled because he's in New York at this point. He's went up, he's he's visiting now. You can definitely tell by this just by the setting, they they let you know this is New York. And not just New York, but it is sort of a run-down tenement area. You have some children jumping up and down. Dilapidated vehicle. On a dilapidated vehicle. And Trash cans about, yeah. graffiti. As Damien goes to uh, visit with his mother. Damien Karras. Karras very much, it's a Greek name. And when you see his mother, she's got, like, very much got that Greek, the, the Catholic or the Greek Orthodox type of... One thing we got to mention too is he's starting to visit his mother. She is. Uh, you're going to note that she's kind of a sickly character, and it's going to play a huge role in the plot and unfoldings of the movie. Uh, but this woman died prior to the film's release, right, Joey? Uh, if I remember correctly, or at yes. the time of at least. Yeah. So the actress playing his mother uh, passed away. As there was nine deaths associated with this film, which adds to the lore. You're also learning that uh, Father Karras has a boxing background, almost like a, a Rocky Marciano type shots in pictures. His mother's terminal in some way. He's coming to visit her is what it looks like. So she won't...
So she hasn't seen him in a while. So to a point where they are eating, they're eating, or they're listening to the radio in Greek. She doesn't speak much English. They have some exchanges in Greek. So he's very, he's caring for her, but his mother wants to live independently because she's come to this country and not, uh, doesn't want to give up the independence that she earned getting here. So they're having the conversation now. Very thick accent, too. So he's very conflicted about this, so he wants to care for his mother. She doesn't live with him. She lives... So he lives in Georgetown, so... Valsinki Marla Rose, I believe, is the actress's name that plays Damien's mother. It's it's a very... It is a Greek name, very yeah. Greek. R.I.P.? So you can almost see... His, with his mother in the scenes in so, Iraq, that woman who's in all in black does bear a similarity. Right at the 22-minute mark, you're going to notice kind of that key lighting on his mother's face as he leaves. Yeah. And that's a very important uh, lighting technique that's revisited. Yeah, Reagan, Sort too, of that half-lit. In her playroom here at about uh, 22, 12-ish, we'll say, uh, just pulled up a bird figure, almost like a Thunderbird-ish figurine so but you're going to notice the use of birds throughout this which is a callback to pazuzu as a spirit and a lot of the depictions of him have uh bird-like wings and then the mother pulls out a ouija board which she learns that reagan's been playing with a ouija board here about the 2240 mark if this if he had been successful initial william peter blatty if he'd been successful in his initial attempts Something I want to talk about, he's the exorcist might not have been made because he didn't necessarily want to make the exorcist. He wanted to make an accounting, he wanted to write an accounting of the actual exorcism that happened supposedly in 1949 with a boy from Maryland right. that they had brought to St. Louis. Right. They'd had him in the Alexian Brothers hospital and which was a mental hospital at the time it served many different functions and it still is open in some in some regard or it was up until earlier parts of 2023 so here we have the uh you also were introduced before we pass it up around the 23 minute mark to captain howdy captain howdy of yeah. course is uh the name used for the spirit that reagan's communicating with through the ouija uh one thing to point out Reagan's mother's in the process of a divorce. Her father's name is Howard, and Howdy is actually a common nickname for Howard. Um, so that might be a call to that and her acceptance to talking to the spirit or unknown entity through the Ouija board. 
future call-outs to Captain Howdy. <laughs> if you remember a uh, movie that came out in the 90s that D. Schneider did called Strangeland. That was his name, his alter ego name in that movie was Captain Howdy. Had a lot of turns toward uh, sadomasochism in it. And sort of had a structure a little similar to Psycho 2. Oh, they're going to talk about the director. We are at 24.50 now, just to give you a timestamp real quickly. One other thing I want to mention in Reagan's Playroom that we overlooked earlier is the fact that you see some imagery of Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, things like that, which is kind of foretelling of Reagan's character and some of the colors that are used and what she's wearing in scene to scene. So uh, to one point, she's wearing a very similar outfit to uh, the witch from Hansel and Gretel. So that's to infer that there's something uh, ominous going on with her in particular. Uh, of course, the wolf from Red Riding Hood, too, as well. well Childhood Story is another thing worth pointing out. These transformations. So, all sort of reports toward these, what you'd call almost, because those are all Germanic. All these Germanic fairy tales. Right. He, he had said he, like, so Friedkin said he wanted to cap, you know, hone in on a little bit of the fairy tale type you know that because all these things were very dark fairy tales like german fairy tales, they're all very dark and that and like nursery rhymes up oh, and here we have the almond brothers the minutes own... even yes sir rambling man yeah with father Karras inside of the pub yeah. which is uh an all-time classic rock favorite song of mine. oh absolutely almond brothers underrated in my opinion I'm a very big Dickie Betts fan. Dickie Betts and Greg Allman. Ooh, and Dwayne. Yeah, yeah. Dwayne. R.I.P. Yeah. Well, Greg, too. Yeah, they're all, yeah, there's very many of them. Just hearing Dwayne and uh, Dickie Betts play together is just. What we think of as guitar harmony is pretty much. There, there's a huge foundation of that. In the Allman Brothers. There's other bands that did it. That did more of a, a metallic or more of a minor key take on it. Yeah. But the first thing, like some of the first real true guitar harmonies in a rock context that you hear are going to be the Allman Brothers. So about 26 and a half minutes, I want to make a mention real quick. Father Karras reveals the fact that his background's in psychiatry. Yeah. And uh, that's why he actually counsels a lot of various other priests into and then the position that he's in is just some of his qualifications so he's and the mention of, of his faith is kind of slipping too so so sort of torn between the the literal secular and the spiritual the literal and the spiritual the you know the scientific and the actual spiritual that he's you know taxed or tasked with you know being a steward of of somebody who right. keeps portraying you know portraying this positive example so of thing the we would have mentioned too is linda blair in this of course she's 15 while filming she's depicting a 12 year old i believe yes is that right? yeah, Reagan yeah. 12 in the story 
which is not uncommon in Hollywood to be playing a younger age, and that's not as much of a stretch as you've seen. It's pretty common you see like mid twenties, upper twenty year olds playing teenagers, especially like in things like Stranger Things. Look up the cast age versus shooting. <laughs> right. Well, they started off appropriate, but when you have instead of having a year between seasons, they're typically having two to three. Right. And you're definitely going to shoot up in size in that case. Around the 28-minute mark, too, you're going to notice uh, that uh, both Reagan and her mother sleep in the same bed together, bedside. This is her mother's bed, of course, and she First. claims that her bed is shaking and she couldn't sleep. It's important to note looking forward. Now we're going to go up into the attic. All that scratching we've been hearing about and scraping. And here we are back to the key lighting from the skylight, as I guess is what we're supposed to believe as the viewer. That key lighting on the face, that's one thing in movies that often people don't look at, is also, is very foretelling or foreshadowing uh, things with characters, helping set the mood. Especially when you set, so especially when you use lighting like that. Attic exactly like mine, by the way. Well, <laughs> and when you have bars like that, you're sort of implying imprisonment, you're implying right. that someone's trapped in a situation. Right. Depending on what the color palette is representing or what objects in the scene are representative of. They have someone crossing through a pattern of bars. So here we are in in what their German housekeeper has said is a very clean attic. Cleaner than mine. Yeah, cleaner than, yeah. Most. So here's Mine one of the first little other than rat shit and old birds dust yeah. though. Here's <laughs> one of the first real cuts that they're gonna have of the subliminal imagery. So it's a literal blink if you miss it. We see a rap trap. Something taxidermied. In the forefront of the shot. In the forefront of the shot. 30 minutes and 40 seconds. We have rats here that are completely... We have rat traps here that are completely clean. So Chris, of course, which is Reagan's mother, I just want to mention this once again. Uh, she was just uh, frightened. Huge, like fla- a huge flare of red and blue flame right there. And that's, I believe, where one of the subliminal cuts is. Yeah, so the subliminal cuts are so fast in a handshake. You can miss them easily. Uh, you really have to be paying attention. We're Because we're doing the watch-along thing here, we're trying to stay with our notes and everything else going on, so we might not catch every single time one happens to point it out to you, but that's a part of the director's cut thing that we wanted to mention, of course, is you're not going to get this experience if you're watching the theatrical cut. Which, don't get me wrong, I think there's an appreciation. You should at least watch it once, just to know. Um, but the director's cut is the initial director's vision for this movie. The things that they shot with intent and staged purposely, so keep that in mind. There are some things that I would only recommend... Like the, and I won't say always, but there are some movies that 
I would only really recommend the director's cut. We were talking about this before we started today. Oh, so we have some defamation, some destruction of... 3210, Virgin Mary statue. Yeah, the defacement of the Virgin Mary statue. And something that you'll notice are colors that are the same as colors of clay that Reagan has in her room. Uh, 30, they about point out. 3210, you'll notice the boys fighting just like the dogs were in the open of the movie as well. Another I think little that's bit some of foreshadowing. foreshadowing there. Reagan's getting some tests done on her uh, sleep issues and what have you. At the moment, uh, at the doctor's office, or at least this is the way I've always interpreted it as. And then now we've just got one of those subliminal flashes on the screen. So right do you about 32 and a half or so, or 40. So the, the, the face of Pazuzu that we associate with this, we know that... Uh, some things that... You oh, first little turn of sort of aggression but from Reagan. Reagan's starting to be a little bitch to the doctor. Sort of being snotty, a little different than her normal. Yeah, up until this point, Reagan's been a model child. Yeah. Now she's being uh, divisive and um, argumentative or... Sort of difficult, being adding more difficult. Right. Humming to herself, acting strange, the nurse is taking note of this. Yeah, being non-compliant. Yeah, defiant. Totally uncharacteristic. Yeah, she obviously just focused in on the nurse that was in the room with her. So we're like almost to a quarter way into this film, and then she's just taking a turn character-wise into being somebody entirely different and her mother actually hasn't even witnessed these things herself so she's starting to get a report from the doctor uh with temper and hyperactivity and so on and so forth so doc's writing some script for ritalin Ritalin. in 1973 so think about this so really quickly i want to mention My sister was diagnosed with ADHD in the 90s, and yeah. they prescribed her Ritalin at that time. And it, Ritalin was so poorly performed and inconsistent with some of the side effects and what have you, even at that time. So we're talking 20 to 25 years later, my sister actually chased us around the house with a fucking knife. And I had to call uh, our counselor. <laughs> yeah, I remember... On it, because my parents were gone and I was babysitting as a uh, 10-year-old, which should have never happened to begin with. Oh, man. Growing up at that time. Being, yeah, we different get, times, we, the 90s. We would get left alone. Like, our parents, I remember, like they would just go on vacations without us. Yeah. And they'd sure. be like, well, we can't afford to take all the kids. Good luck. Y'all are... Here's money, groceries, whatever. Yeah, here's groceries. Uh, call your grandma if something happens. Uh, not even that. I well, mean, that didn't sis- happen to me. I just know that that happens with a lot of people. Oh, my no, grandparents didn't fer- give a fuck. We got treated like feral dogs. Like we, we got like too. they threw a pile of cash on on one of the chairs, and we're like, "See ya." But uh, these are one of these. So Ritalin. Uh, here's one of the the first real big shockers. Right at thirty six minutes now.
the doctor says, keep my fingers away from my cunt, is supposedly what Reagan said. Her mother is uh, laughing in embarrassment, Briss. I think the one the way they explain it in the book is that so so Burke Dennings, the director, is British, and the c word is not a big as big of a deal in uh the British slang. Right. That word is on is on par with uh what they would say ass, arse, or right, fanny. Right. Ass is your actual outside ass. Arse is your asshole. (laughs) So they've now taken her mother, Damien's mother. Yeah, Damien. So we cut now to another hospital. So it's important to note that we're in this hospital scene now, about 37, 16 now on the timestamp. And this is a real hospital, operating hospital, mental hospital that is. The shots that you're going to see are real patients through the majority throughout this, and Friedkin did this by staging hidden cameras throughout the hospital, so very much not something you would see today. No, no. People who are dealing with severe mental illness, not only that, but the mismanagement of people in uh, these situations. Absolutely. People, because... For the longest time, mental hospitals existed so we could throw our problems away. And 100%. They would, if you were objectionable to a point that they deemed a real problem, they would give you things like Thorazine to a point where you were basically a zombie. One thing I'm not sure of, and you might know this, Joey, is the African-American nurse that's in this. Is she the actual nurse of this institution? Because she is manhandling these patients. <laughs> uh, if this is... So if, if this was done in that... I would imagine so, because somebody without training would not know yeah. the ways in which to deal with this. I mean, there's a lot of physical handling there. Here's some more foreshadowing, what you would call a, a twist of the knife. Yeah, is Damien's trying to comfort his mother, and she's saying, "Why'd you do this to me, Demi? Why'd you do this to me?" And that is used to taunt Karis later on. Karis inside the yeah. gym working out his aggressions, getting a little exercise in. Yeah. I need to take some lessons here. 39, 16 now. It's only good, so I'll tell you right now, boxing's only good if you know how to punch, because I have tried myself right. and screwed my hands up. Gotta Not- use wrap and wrist, man. It's wrist support, so it's all about. So I had the wraps and everything. I threw a punch wrong one time, and I felt it crack deep down in my wrist, and had to be very careful after that. So we're at a house party inside of Chris's home now. It's a very hip party. Yeah. Looks like Hollywood people happening. from all the different all different walks, including priests. About thirty nine fifty five, yeah. I would say, is I think our first introduction to Father Dyer. Not only that, but we also have the the astronaut. You have Joseph Dyer, 
talking to uh, the astronaut. Father Dyer is worth mentioning real quickly because he's a real priest, actually, who was used in the film, and uh, he consulted with a lot of the various uh, religious elements of the film and how they would handle things such as an exorcism in and of itself. And I think so he comes off as a very good actor, actually. Oh, if, he's very natural. Yeah. And they're talking about Father Karras right now. So they did recast him. Well, him and Kinderman both in Legion. So here you have scenes of... Right at the 41 minute mark. Yeah. So if you're... So we talked about... There's some uh, tension... And the inciting incident, the inciting incident of this particular party, or this or this particular movie, or this what brings the outside involvement, is a death, and they cast it sort of as a who done it, even though. Forty-one thirty. Yeah. Chris comes in to kiss Reagan. She's sleeping. Also, yeah. we got to mention this real quick. After she leaves, yeah. so uh, she opens con- her eyes. So they showed a confrontation, which I don't believe is in the original between Burke Dennings and Carl or Gun- the was it Gunner Carl? I can't remember her German her her male the male house worker. Yes, they it's show a, a very violent altercation between the two of them. And they've basically kicked Burke Dennings out of the party at this point. We are, just to give a quick timestamp, we're at 42, 16, 17, 18 now. All right. So through the magic of movie editing, we just pause for a second. And we're back. At the 44, 30 minute mark now. 44, 30. 42, 30. Excuse me. Yeah, we had to go make more cocktails because this has just been too much fun. Too much fun, and it, it's a pleasant. The bitter end cocktail is a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it's criminal how much fun we're having right now. Oh, it is, absolutely. So here we are. Oh, someone's gonna have. I'm glad we took a break to pee because someone else is fixing to. <laughs> so she's referring to the astronaut that's at the party, and she is now pissing the floor at forty ruining. Minutes. Her mother's carpet. Yeah. Chris is not happy. I'm just glad she didn't do like you used to do with a dog and rubber nose in it. No doubt. Something's not right. So she did make a reference to that. That particular astronaut ends up getting played in uh, Ninth Configuration or in the book uh, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. And it is Reagan's impetus of telling him he's going to die when he goes into space that effectively drives him to the point where he has to be in an asylum. All of uh, William Peter Blatty's books, there's three, none of which were the heretic. But all of them have some sort of a tie to one another. I mean, you have... Dyer and Kinderman in Legion. You have the astronaut in uh, Ninth Configuration. 
which absolutely is a fantastic. I talked about it a little bit on one of the podcasts we were on. I was on before, but it it's worth watching if for another no other reason than it's sort of a tragic comic type of play. Reagan starts screaming here. I got to so here quickly about forty four twenty six ish. The here. bed is violently moving. So around. we push in first on Chris, seeing what's happening with the bed. Reagan earlier was saying her bed's been shaking. Important to note that Linda Blair actually injured herself here. She broke her back on this bed from the violent movements. She suffered from scoliosis and chronic pain for the rest of her life. And William Friedkin, no respecter of any actor's guild at the time. <laughs> yeah. Basically just kept putting people through difficult times. So we have Karis and Dyer together having a scene. Mentioned that Karis, uh, Dyer mentioned uh, with Karis off screen that his mother had passed already yeah. in the film. So he's seeing him and he's drinking. Not uncommon in Catholic faith, but no, other really. denominations uh, drinking bad. Especially evangelicals. They do it. They just feel worse about it. I never said they never did it. It's yeah. just not allowed or preferred. Right. There's lots of things that aren't allowed in religions that uh, get done anyway. And they go to church and... That's called hypocrisy, folks. It sure is. <laughs> they they just go to church on Mon- on Sunday and they ask for forgiveness, which is probably no different than... it's. No different than the Catholics. The Catholics Notice just that have Father Karras uh, tan line on the feet too. By the way, oh, I know. <laughs> he's wearing. He's obviously been out day drinking. Was wearing his loafers with no socks. A real fucking flex. Too. Yeah, probably. If he he's from the Northeast, he's having some beers down by the Pias. <laughs> Stealing is a sin. Gotta love that. Stole his cigarette. Here's some key lighting again. More of that three-quarter type lighting. And then here we are back to the pendant. The St. Joseph's... We ha- so we're having... His mother submerging from subterranean level. He's calling to his mom. Damien's calling Emerging. to his mom. So this is one of those experimental... Esoteric version. Esoteric. Yeah. Flashes flash. the Pazuzu face, which, if you don't know, was just a makeup test. Right. They, they were going to... They decided... Dick Smith did this makeup. He's still calling for his mother. And the medallion now fell on the stones. So the, the implement of religious faith thrown down on the stone. So Reagan curses at the doctor at uh, 47 and we'll say 20 seconds-ish. They're trying to sedate her in the office. She calls him fucking bastard. And then cuts back to Karis in church giving a prayer. Him doing the... This is something if you've sinned, sat in any sort of Catholic mass, they do have a section where they have where who they're praying for, asking for forgiveness for, asking for blessings for. So with my wife being Catholic, I've been to a lot of Catholics, and there's always a section where they're going to ask for prayers for people, which is not markedly different in my 
upbringing outside of Catholicism. Anytime we went to Methodist church, Baptist church, there's always a time. Like, it's what kills me about religion is they they argue about things that are simple when the fundamental things are the same. About forty eight twenty is that forty eight or forty nine? I believe it is forty eight. So they have uh, the, the doctor doc- starts to give some more diagnosis too to say that in the temporal region of the brain is causing some hallucinations and what have you, but. Chris is also explaining to the doctor that she observed this as well. So it can't be just in her daughter's mind. So another thing where you have sort of a symptom of the time is basically this is a version of mansplaining. Oh, for sure. You didn't see the bed shaking. You're hysterical. Right, right, right. There's some interesting framing in here that, like, the way some of these shots are cut are just, you can see the influence of other filmmakers in here. There's certain things in here that remind me of other filmmakers, and especially once you start seeing them in in 4K like this, where you have a very clear cut. Because this is, looks like the day it was shot. One thing we got to mention, the radiologist in this. So you're introduced to him around the 49 and a half minute mark. You'll see him some more in background shots. He's not a prominent character in the film. But, and you're also noticing Reagan's uh, physical appearance starting to deteriorate, especially her lips yeah, becoming chapped and bloody. Crack, yeah. The radiologist prominently at about 49.55. You'll notice right the, the guy playing him. Mark. Paul Baston, convicted murderer, by the way, is suspected of serial killing um, multiple young gay men. And Freakin went on to actually explore uh, Baston's crimes in his film Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Al Pacino, yeah. There are some, there's some more subliminal shots in that, but they are of a very explicit nature. So Reagan's so, starting to get some more extensive tests done on so, her. Some of the more intense things i so basically they're gonna give her an injection here or they're gonna put uh, there which you don't see iodine prep much these days no no right in the jugular right in the neck so just a fun piece of uh interesting trivia i so i saw someone have a central line inserted through their neck once oh my god you want to talk about, like, this is the only thing that prepped me for it in any way whatsoever. Th- between this and then when they pull that out and there's blood squirting out of it. You're right. Oh, my God. That's exactly what they're doing. That That's what, when you're putting in a central line or a pick line like that. Right, right. That's exactly what is being done. It is horrifying to see i had and we had to do it on an offender we had an offender that he had taken to get what's called kops which is a basically a 30-day supply of a medication right he tried to kill himself by taking 30 days worth of blood pressure medicine mm. all at once and we had to take him on a medical out count so this is what they used to have to do when they were doing a cat scan oh good lord yep 
A lot of literal manual maneuverings of the equipment. This loud crashing that is sort of... Which, uh... Sort of matches with that scene in the foundry. Right, right. Where we have... Subterranean scene with the... So, or where we have, even the at the very beginning when they're in Iraq, where you hear, right. kung, 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 where they're beating on that anvil. Very similar sound effect. As a guy who's recently went undergone many CT scans and MRIs, uh, the loud banging and clanking actually has not improved that much over no. the years. CAT scans do make a very specific sound. You can't see it. Because we're not on a camera right now, but every time that we would go in, because you have to be in the room with the inmate when they're getting that done, basically. Mm-hmm. And we would stand in the doorway between their their little section where they would do the CAT scan, and they'd be like, cover your balls. And, we would, <laughs> and everyone in the room would just sit there. If you're planning on having kids, cover your balls, and we cover you'd cover yourself up. Right. So here's another example of that. You're just going to see it over and over. It's going to push in. 5320. And you're going to see a reaction. This is what injured her back. Yeah. The bed Please. rattling is not, this harness right here caused ongoing injury to her, to Linda Blair. Linda Blair's flailing about. Yeah. They did such a good job, which this has been fixed in post over the years of. That right there, that bladder effect on her throat, uh. where it swells like that. We got some fuck me talk with her showing her privates to everybody in the room. And uh, we've talked about injuries and you're very soon and shortly. Can I notice another one? The doctor to me looks eerily exactly like Will Patton, the actor. A little bit. He does. I, I can see it. It's like you traveled through time and played this part. More of this, uh, these sort of quiet moments. Like they juxtapose. He really does. He's got it very much. Especially present day. Will oh, Patton. yeah. Yeah. If you've seen Outer Range, good yes. side by side comparison. But he's got that sort of classic 70s. Like Definitely. he looks like a central casting doctor, basic. Like that's what he looks like quite a bit. He does look a little bit... He's a little younger. They continue to mansplain. Yeah. They try to make the practical impractical. Or the impractical practical, I should say. As to what's happening. They're trying to dictate and characterize what's going on with Reagan to her mother, Chris. Right now, the doctors are explaining what's going on with her. So, earlier in the room, we did have our first appearance of the actress Mercedes McCambridge. Yes, I Her voice performance. Yes. The, the performance of Reagan is several... It's, it's two actors, so it's, it is Linda Blair, but it's also her stunt double, who was small enough in frame... Female, small enough in frame to play a 12-year-old, yeah. or place that she was built like Linda... Blair, right. and then the voice, the voice we talked is a lady named Mercedes McCambridge. She was very famous earlier on in film, and she'd sort of fallen off and was a, uh, she got this job 
for a from William Friedkin on the condition that she would be just doing voice acting. And she had to petition, like she was never credited for it initially. But she underwent a lot just to have that happen. First off, she was a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, so then she drank more alcohol. So to make that sound, yeah, she would do shots of Jack Daniels and she would swallow raw eggs. And she was smoking, chain chain smoking. smoking. So it would be cigarette, raw egg, whiskey. Cigarette, raw, egg, whiskey, do a take. (laughs) Cigarette, raw, egg, whiskey. Cigarette, cigarette, raw, egg, whiskey, do a take. All right, here's the doctors going through everything because they have no explanation now about the 56, 30 mark. They start on this with further testing. Do you keep any alcohol in your house? She says, uh, Chris says that she doesn't even smoke grass or keep alcohol in the house. Which, why would you now with the wonderful world of uh, other other ways of... Legalization. Yeah, legalization. (laughs) Number one. Yeah. Number two, why ingest harmful carcinogens right. when you can eat a little gummy bear yeah. and, tur- and turn into a stack of waffles with mel- butter melting over you? We don't know anything about that. Though. I don't know anything about that, right. but the descriptions that I've heard, especially watching people on TikTok taking edibles and having too much, having a reaction to them, being like, y'all's weed is too strong. Yeah. This isn't even weed anymore. So here's how we end up with uh, Damien Karras, because he is a psychiatrist as well as a priest at Georgetown. So here's some foreshadowing. There's the Georgetown steps. I actually worked with a lady who was just as into this as me, a lady named Nicole Francis, who was very, her and her brother are both way into horror movies. And she actually, on vacation, went and got her picture taken at the bottom of the Georgetown steps. I'll be goddamn. Yeah. That's great. That's that's her profile picture on Facebook now. I'm kind of jealous. Oh, I know. Me too. Here we are back into this lighting mention, yeah. the key lighting mention. But you'll notice that Chris's face is almost shot very similar to Pazuzu's cut-ins. And then we just Over the hood on the stove, they have that Pazuzu, subliminal, subliminal image shot. of Pazuzu. Uh, as she travels from room to room, I don't know if we've gotten to that shot yet, a dark room. Yep, they just, just did another, another Pazuzu one Pazuzu of the statue Pazuzu. Which, by the way, that logo just is fantastic. Between those two things, just yeah. as far as unsettling, like a look that is just absolutely another unsettling. Another huge set mentioned too right now at the point we are in the film. The window's up and again in Reagan's room. We are around the 58 or 59 We are almost at the half-minute mark. Yeah. Or halfway uh, mark. You could see, actually, Chris's breath as she went into the room, which is a huge thing that they had to do for this. They had to uh, create a set with extreme refrigeration to replicate that. So this is not, you know, the modern conveniences of CGI. Director's cut, too. Chris just left the room. To the left of the wall, the dark side of the wall, if you actually turn up the lighting in this fun fact, you can actually see Pazuzu's statue silhouette on the wall to the left of the screen. Mm-hmm. You can't see it on uh, a naked watching, though. Yeah. I don't know it's what good that does It's there if you know anybody. it's there. I can right. see it. But I also know that it's there. That incident in the room is very much... A situation where they bring up the they they sort of draw parallels to the actual case, the actual possession case. 
Yeah, we so, learned that Burke's yeah. dead. So when when Chris was driving home, right at the one hour mark, yeah, killed at the steps outside of the home. He broke his neck. So right outside of Chris's home, broke his neck. Keep that in mind. They go a little more in depth in the novel, and they describe the manner in which it was broken. Right, and this actually to put back to your point earlier too. This kind of plays back into the whodunit murder mystery thing. Yeah. A lot of the book is based off this, correct? Yeah. Well, it it doesn't delve real deep we into hear it because now, and Reagan goes down the steps backwards at the one hour and forty second mark, and this is fucking terrifying and terrible. This um, would be where we would have the black. Yeah, fade to black. So this would have been the perfect point for an intermission. Absolutely. But right at the 101 mark. We're going to keep this going because the next cut in, we see Reagan's physical condition is very much starting to deteriorate more. Darkened circles under the eyes. Very pale. lips still yet pale in appearance. Dead-eyed, longing look. This shows up. We, we cut right in. To effectively a hypnosis section. They they don't give you too much. They don't spoon feed you it. But you basically know that he's. We have to notice too. At the 101, 35-ish mark. Reagan's hand stays upright. With a bend to the wrist. And that's a call back to the Pazuzu statue. That you saw at the first of the film. It's also an indicator. For the. Hip for hypnosis because that's sure. something that you'll see a lot in there. It's it's physically something like that. Or if you see something similar to like the Baphomet statues, Baphomet's always got this. Right. They always have the two hail. fingers extended two fingers, up, yeah. and then the other hand is pointing out in the same gesture. This is basically to indicate that she is under his hypnotism. We hear growls now from Reagan. See her teeth starting to look uncared for. We're going to see effectively the scowl. So, Chris, the thing that they don't talk about. So we just saw superimposion over the face of the psychiatrist at the 102 and a half mark or so. Of Pazuzu over Reagan's face. This happens multiple times throughout the film. People don't realize it. Just assume it's a makeup effect. But it's... It's actually front projection. Right. Exactly right. So uh, you see that scowl. The very famous scowl that you see on a lot of the DVD covers. Yes. In there. Uh, another thing that you don't notice. They, they show Chris take a handkerchief and cover her mouth. It's because when the demon manifests, it smells of rot. It smells of dead flesh. And that's how they know when that demon is present. Uh, that's actually in the book. Another thing they talk about, you can't really capture it on film because you can't do it realistically, is that another thing with the demon manifests when it's speaking in the demon's voice, they say it's a voice that's bigger than what could come out of that child. A voice that's bit, that fills the room more than could be physically filled. Because it's the voice of a demon and this, this voice of legion. It's not just the voice of a single person. Right. It's effectively the voice of a million possessed voices. So we just got introduced introduction to Kinderman about 10350 Mark. Kinderman's the detective over homicide. 
and he is talking to Father Karras, specifically who was running around the track getting a little cardio in. Yeah. That's the one he gets uh, recast by George C. Scott. George C. Scott does a fantastic job in Exorcist 3 or Legion. It's a little different performance, but we're getting a little bit of expository information here from the detective. Drink. So we had to... uh... So we are at 104.45. We've, of course, got the detective walking with Father Karras across the grounds of what we would assume is Georgetown University. Correct. Because uh, Father Karras is, uh, I guess we are to assume, an alumni thereof. He's wearing a jacket. And they are discussing back and forth the case that is uh, developing here. So in addition, he is employed there. That's where their actual theology school is. That's actually the reason Georgetown's so important is Georgetown is where William Peter Blatty went to school. Ah, okay. I didn't know that. That's where he was when he read. He was there in 1949 when he read about the, the... Some further information that they bring up is talking about Burke Dennings, his head being turned all the way around, back facing backwards. So we're at 105.50 now. You can probably attribute some of this to early early examples of what you would call the satanic panic. Right. Oh, without question, this film was a huge player in all of that. People thought that this was unholy. Oh, absolutely. We talked about the divisiveness of this movie. Specifically, though, here's how divisive it was. You had people like evangelicals like Jerry Rubin, who said that this movie was patently evil. And then you had like the archdiocese come out and said it was one of the most profoundly spiritual movies that they'd seen in a long time. Billy Graham specifically spoke out against this huge televangelist, huge evangelical leader of faith. Yes. And his family, the Graham family. So now we have uh, Detective Kenderman being, trying to be sly. So Kenderman, in particular, the detective, is uh, kind of a psychological uh, playboy, if you know anything. The way he akins to some of the characters throughout this is kind of actually a manipulation tactic. Uh, He's actually going to invite Karis to a theater... Uh, showing for film, that is, which is funny because I've had this conversation with real people in real life, not for the purposes that he's doing in the film, but uh, 107 approaching 30 now, and the detective is talking to <laughs> Karis this about is seeing... the smartest, that's the most ignorant, smart-ass joke. Go for it. No, that one that he just made in this movie. I love it. A lot of what Kinderman reminds me of is, like, if you watch Columbo. Absolutely. Yep. Nailed it. A lot of folks listening to this might never have ever heard of Columbo, though, so maybe yeah. we should smarten them up. 
detective show Peter Falk. First off, he said he looked like Salminio. If you've yeah. ever seen uh, yes. what is Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. Salminio is the the other actor next to James Dean. Right. Salminio uh, also famously was uh, a guy that a friend of ours, Tony Michael, was routinely compared to as his celebrity uh, doppelganger. He did very much look like him. He did. But but he did a very good De Niro impression. Tony he did. did. Yeah. These shoes. He was also pretty good at uh, Master Blaster from. Uh, he was always really Mad good at Max. being sexy too. Yes, he's a he's a handsome gentleman. He's a very handsome gentleman. About one hundred eight thirty, you notice Reagan's condition worsened drastically too. Cuts we're, all over we're the to face. A, we're to a point where she is discussing with this hospital staff that we're they think she like should be. That they, they're saying multiple Reagan PhDs should be, too. Yeah. Right. They're talking about Reagan should be committed, right? Because they believe that her this is a psychological thing. There was some foreshadowing. And that would with be the most. Too. I mean, that would be the most prevalent thing in right. this situation. Sure, that would be the natural reaction, to everybody. And whenever uh, Reagan came down and pissed all over the carpet earlier in the film, too, there's some foreshadowing there. Her costuming, her nightgown, if you will, looked very similar to the treatments that were on the psychological patients that you saw whenever Father Karras went in to visit his mother. So it was to insinuate that on the horizon there was supposed to be some kind of psychological breakdown. Some sort of mental issue. I gotta take a short aside because I just finished up my previous glass and now I have the one. So talking about our cocktail that we have here, the bitter end, we have added and augmented to it LaCroix Limoncello. Yeah, and it is delightful. I believe we did, it, a, we did a fit. We did a full pitcher, fifty-fifty mixture, and added a can of limoncello, and it is just—it's fantastic. I agree, one hundred percent. So, before things get real too heavy, as we wrap up this scene here with the doctor board, if you will, talking with Chris. As to what they're going to do. Yeah, they've officially we'll introduced. Yeah, they've officially introduced the option of exorcism. So Chris is traveling back to the home, from what we can see with the driver. So we are at the one ten one forty two mark. I cannot say enough about this four K restoration. Oh, absolutely. There are things here that are just outrageous so good like such great shots gives you even more of an appreciation for what they did at the time for sure. oh yeah absolutely the framings and here we are at these steps one of the more iconic shots up those steps Reagan in bed now at the one eleven twenty four markish or so. We see that. So we're cut back to. We have Reagan here. Has a crucifix under her pillow. It's cutting back and forth between so Kinderman Reagan and starting bed to piece things together. Now Kinderman pulls out another clay figure. Much like some of those pulled from the archaeological site. 
So it makes you wonder how you ended up with this. Like why she has... Why these things are around this area. So Chris is questioning Carl about a crucifix that was under Reagan's pillow now. Asking if he did and why. And he says he did not. With crucifix in hand, as far as where we left off with Chris, and Kinderman is traveling up the steps, up toward the home, or he can looking see out the door, outside the window, right? Yeah. Of Reagan's room, we are to assume at this point. Now Chris is going through the house and questioning all the workers where the cross came from. And this is where Kinderman meets Chris. This is a fantastic scene. Kinderman's asking if Mr. Dennings was in Reagan's room that evening, the deceased. Funny, Kinderman's warning Chris of drafts throughout the house as the window continues to be open routinely. Yeah. Well, he saw the window. That's right. the one place, one piece of property where he could have fell from. This slow push in on him as he's making his point. Just the tension. And they keep this push going. On both characters as yeah. cutaways over the shoulder shots. Yeah, it just gets tighter and tighter. So Kinderman's at least got the part right that it came from the daughter's window, but I like uh, the... he theorizes it's from a very powerful man. Right? Yeah. So that's the huge take So this is where it comes into the whodunit. So we start pulling back away. Judas Priest. Yeah. Amazing band. Yeah. <laughs> he's... So he's eliminating... Outside possibilities. We're laying out quite a bit here because it's an intense doing... scene with Kinderman and Chris in particular, so we didn't want to take away from that. Things are starting to get more intense. Yeah. Chris offers more coffee to Kinderman just as a kindness. I don't think she expected him to say yes, and he said yeah. yes. So she hesitantly is getting them more coffee now. 
So he does something here that is very much like this is. We talked about the Columbo, the Peter Falk right. detective show. Right. Very much, he has some some double backs and some things that, or he's noticed certain. If you look here, there's sculptures or clay sculptures, clay sculptures that Reagan has made. And you'll and again in the background, you'll notice occasional birds or paintings, uh, statues, so on and so forth too. Incidentally, you might ask your daughter if she remembers. We've talked about some of the controversies as well. I want to mention real quickly the fact that early screenings of this film... Uh, had some very adverse reactions from audiences. People claimantly were sick, uh, fainted. In Europe, specifically, a nearby church was struck by lightning, so it just kind of added to the demonic lore of this film overall and controversy. Just the bad hoodoo. I love this, that he pulls the... uh... He pulls the autograph clown thing at the very end of it. Yeah, back to Mr. Kinderman. He asked for an autograph from Chris. She's a famous Hollywood actress, as we mentioned earlier. And uh, he said it's for a relative, but then changes it to himself. He said, I lied. It's for Kinderman. This is a part of the uh, flattery as a card. Again, back to the manipulation thing that I was starting to make this point earlier, and Joey's touched on a little bit with the Columbo aspects of him. It's his way of uh, endearing himself to various people to get information out of them. And he sort of ingratiates himself into a scene, and it's very, it's a very different, unique way to for him to do that. He puts people at ease before he starts kind of exactly right, shoves it in there. So I want to point out something he he said is that a an open window in a or in a hot house is a window for bacteria. So a possession is effectively an infection. He points out the whole thing that open. He came in through the open window. Here's another. Here's where the world pushes 44. in. Here's chaos going on in her room. Forty-five's thrown. Good. And God. a terrible scene where let, let Jesus fuck you. Reagan's fighting with the demon internally. You can see she's stabbing herself right in the veg with a crucifix. crucifix. Yeah. Still a scene that doesn't get any better. Screaming, lick me, shows her face, mom's face into her vagina. She whips back, and this is the other scene of injury. Scene of injury that I mentioned earlier. Whenever Chris yells out in pain, Ellen, the actress, she actually, that's a stunt where the harness yanked her across the room. And, uh. Oh, God. Burke's Den- Burke Denning's voice. The way that they do that cut, the head rotating around backwards. Yeah. So only re- so only Chris saw that, and then she heard, in Burke Denning's voice, him say, effectively that his that her daughter killed him. So you see that this is sort of a like, the psychological. 
just the the warfare that is going on here. Uh, Chris meeting Father Karras formally for the first time too now here at the 120 marker. So we're at 120, 2015, 16, 2017. She's going to try to play the skeptic. Which is funny because... Father Karras is the real skeptic in this. So, uh, real pedigree for psychology. Yeah. Harvard, John Hopkins, part of the credentials of Father Karras in his studies. So Father Kara's coming in with half-assed information. Doesn't really know anything about the daughter, which is the issue. This is a... Uh, but this is also a psychiatrist trick. He want, doesn't want to hear what some... He very well could know what's going on. That's he doesn't know, want to know what someone else said. He, he wants to know what their interpretation More of what's happening yeah. is. Second-hand, not third-hand. Yeah. She just went right for it. Yeah, so Chris is asking how we get an exorcism. And Karis is immediately. Of course, incredulous. Yeah. yeah. So Karis says uh, back to the 16th century if you want an exorcism, they don't happen anymore, so. Apparently not something present day observed. So he's a, even he is explain now he's not mansplaining, but he is pointing out the fact that there's a lot of other logical yeah, explanations. Yeah, yeah, he's pointing out lo- actual logical explanations for why this could be happening. Chris has revealed that her daughter is possessed by her perspective, and they need an exorcism, so... He's going to try to uh, convince her. Chris is letting Karis know that she thinks this is a possession issue. Karis is telling her kind of the red tape involved. Church has to approve it, but there's an investigation even to begin with. So that harks back to the uh, the actual case because people initially recommended psychiatric help for the the boy, the the from alias Maryland. Robbie Mannheim, which is and, a John Doe type. Yeah, Robbie Mannheim is the is the alias they gave to yeah. this the the person, and. When they got him to speak to psychiatrists, they effectively turned around and went, you need a priest. Karis is back home now, we got to mention on this timestamp, yeah. 125, 60, 124. So we're in Reagan's 
It wants no straps, is what Carl said. Yeah. So no restraints. And he didn't say she. It. He referred to Reagan as an it at this point. One of those pushes in on character and response. We have Reagan who is restrained. Father Karras is now introduced to Reagan too. Wants the straps off again. Doesn't self-identify as Reagan. Yeah. Now Reagan identifies herself as yeah. the devil possessed yeah. by Pazuzu. Vulgar display of power. Ah. One of the greatest Southern metal like albums how- ever. Pantera. In here with us. This is something only Karis would know. Help an altar boy, father. A line again was used for the demon to Karis. Caught Karis off guard. Uncharacteristically. Again, these are things that... She uses to help. Yes, what his mother's maiden name is of the demon. The demon pauses. And then pukes vomit into his face and mouth. Because she... This is a real react from the actor because that was not... Did not go as planned from the projectile. There's another face in the pillow, too, if you pay attention. We cut back to Reagan's playroom where we see the wolf and... Human clothing in this situation. Again, further depicting some of the things I mentioned that we need to pay attention to and some of the birds littered about, clay statues, so, some of the drawings that she's made. So the argument... A lion with wings. Things, yeah. So when they asked the demon, if he asked the demon what his mother's maiden name is, well, his mother was married in a church. Right. Her official name, according to the church, according to God, is Karis. That other name has effectively been absolved or dissolved. Right. So, so the, the demon, demon wouldn't know. know. We are now at the 126, 53, 54, 55 mark for a quick timestamp. Karis is talking about some of his concerns. So his skepticism is starting to fall away. Right. She's speaking in languages she wouldn't know. He's a psychological expert. Yeah, they talk about him being an expert. Which is why it makes Father Karis a more adept or qualified person to deal with the situation because he comes with it practicality to begin with and uh, roots out those situations. He's looking specifically that there are things that he's right now can't explain. Chris is talking about that she knows that this isn't Reagan as her mother. Chris is, of course, looking way worse. I actually watched an interview with the actress 
1998. And boy, did she age great. Ellen Burstyn? Yeah, yeah Ellen she Burstyn. looked fantastic oh for a long time. Even in 1998. So you're talking 25 well, years nearly later. Well, exactly 25 years later. Well, you're, do you remember? I mean, she doesn't look good in that, but they, they haggard her up. But she was in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Which is a different kind of possession movie. Also very much a horror movie, but a different type of horror movie. So Father Karras asked Chris now if she, she was aware that uh, his mother died. She said yes, and then asked if Reagan knew, and Reagan did not know. So he is there's no way he could have known. His case that you know there's something more going on with Reagan rather than something Outside, he would be able to yeah, explain some, in the secular normal, realm. Yeah. yeah. There's just such layers to this movie that uh, I think you're just not appreciated or not noticed upon first viewing. So he's watching. They showed Karis watching. Not Karis watching. Not Karis, excuse me. Kenderman watching and seeing someone moving up in Reagan's room. So now we're here at the audio libraries. He's listening to Reagan. So listen to regular recordings of Reagan, like a voice message recording. So we're to assume that this is a message for Reagan's father that he is listening, you know. I love this shot here where you can see those reflections. Yeah, so you see Karis just basically staring at himself. Through plexiglass partitions that yeah. run throughout, which we assume to the library. Now we're on to a communion. Karis on site at the sanctuary. So he's seeing. So he's seeing. I think the good thing is, is that you do see. They point out he's not struggling with his faith anymore. Yeah, so Karis is right back to his uh, institutionalized uh, religious teachings now. Well, just watching the expression, this this is... Sobering. Watch his... This is a master class. Yeah. Uh, like... Nuance because he's acting. saying the words and he's Excellent layers and layers an and layers. 131 even. Oh, this is... So, uh, the wheezing says, you and us yeah. to they always Father refer Karras. to it, yeah. They always refer to themselves as a plural, which again, the demon opens the drawer. This voice, I'll tell you what's creepy. I've watched this before and seen the actual in the in the documentary. That they do the one that Friedkin does, they have all of these cut. Now the demon starts to speak yeah. in Latin, and Karis responds back in kind, then to French, then back to Latin, going back and forth.
Father Karras pulls out the holy, holy water. Demon's afraid, notably. Screaming, squelching. Saying it, it burns. hear it speaking gibberish and growls. The actual video of this is is uh, Linda Blair's voice. And some of these things, it is scarier to hear that child's voice saying those lines. Right. <laughs> Like when they're having the conversation in Latin and French. Yeah. So Father Karras now has left the room at one thirty-three oh seven oh eight oh nine. To let you know where we're at, he's already got an uneasiness about his demeanor that is very visibly notable. And Chris is on the phone. All right, so now Karis is waiting, has waited for Chris to get off the phone. She is now off the phone, and Father Karis has gone on to talk to Chris in what appears to be her study, asking if he wants a drink, and yes, he does, which, and he wants a scotch straight up. Well, ice and water. Call me a liar. He's a shivis man. But he looks fucked up right now. Yeah. He has seen some shit, and I don't blame him. And now he has resorted to straight. He just yeah. wants that drink. He tried to come off a modest man, but he ain't. He no. wants a straight up. <laughs> yeah. I want scotch. How do you want it? In a glass? <laughs> if you've got one. Now we've learned that Reagan's father's in Europe. He doesn't know what's going on. Alan Bernstein's looking fucking rough right now, too. Now, Father Karras is talking about the fact that he used the holy water on him, but it's actually tap water. This water was not possessed. Or, excuse me, not blessed. I'm talking and watching at the same time. So he's specified the fact that he used what he called holy water, but the demon did not know it was not, and act like it hurt it. Now the mother has revealed the fact that she's confident that Reagan has killed Burke Dennings, or at least uh, the demon possessing her. So now we're back. Uh, got a note. We are back into him listening to audio recordings. So there's a cut. The framing inside of a window that you see is Tasayuketi. It's Japanese for, uh, which actually also shows up in Reagan's stomach here in a minute as help me. Yeah. So a little bit more foreshadowing taking place. And I probably butchered that enunciation because I'm not Japanese, nor do I speak it. Well, there's all sorts of things that get thrown in there that are strange 
the Latin that they do use is conversational yeah. Latin. When he's, when they say when he starts responding in Latin, she says, effectively, it's wonderful to be able to speak to you in Latin. Mirabile right. dictu is wonderful to relate. Another thing we got to mention too is Marin's reviewing the tape. Yeah. Now he's playing it backwards, and he actually hears Marin's, Marin's yelled name. out, yeah. screamed backwards. And uh, worth noting, two years prior to this, the hubbub around Stairway to Heaven is if you played that backwards by Led Zeppelin, that there was demonic messages there. So I think that Freak can actually pull from that maybe a little bit, or at least it's believed. Well, Backmasking is something that they said people were doing a lot. Like Black Sabbath, they said did sure. backmasking and. There's not actual words in there. It's it's up to interpretation. It's like if you look at a cloud and you decide that it looks like a person. That's your so, own mind. You know what I mean? Doing that. Karis. So and... now to go in the room, we have people putting on. You can see that they you can see their breath, right. and they're actually uncut. They're actually covering themselves, like putting parkas or heavy jackets on, because it's Keep so voice. cold in this room. Yeah. In just the one room. And now we're at the point that I mentioned earlier that they are opening up the stomach on Linda Blair's Reagan's. character, Reagan's stomach. Yeah. And you see the help me protruding from her skin. Funny to note that actually some of this was achieved with her actual allergic reaction on her skin. They did not intend for it to swell up like it did and bump. But she had an allergic reaction to what they were putting on her skin, which caused it to protrude up like that from her skin. You can see in the actual shots that there is red, like capillary reaction. Ultimately would be a good, I mean, that'd be a good makeup effect, but... We're also talking about a child here, though, yeah. so, you know. Well, if you did that, if you achieve that through makeup, that's a great makeup effect. That's a nice note to detail. Right. But this is a 4K restoration. Those things you don't see in a standard, in a standard definition. You only notice that because this has been restored. We are also at the point now, you can a quick timestamp where it's uh, 139, 36, I believe. 38, 38, 36, 36. somewhere around there. So this is Father Karras requesting exorcism from the church. So, interestingly enough, same church that is in The Exorcist 3. That double staircase that they show, that is the same staircase, and there, there's some pivotal, sort of some cuts and jump scares around that in Exorcist 3. One thing I want to mention real quickly, we talked about earlier, that the fact that Linda Blair is 15 in this. Yeah. That guy looks like so. This other priest, look at him. That the not the one on the left, the one on the right. When they cut to him, uh, I can already like, tell you. Who I think he looks, looks like. like Jackie Earl Haley. Well, that or uh, Roger Waters, a Pink Floyd, a little bit present day. Yeah. Uh, so Linda Blair, of course, she was fifteen. We mentioned earlier she got a supporting actress nomination for an Academy Award. This, there was so much hubbub behind this movie. We've already mentioned that as well as far as some of the adverse reactions. That actually, the studio had to provide her six months of bodyguards due to death threats that she, in particular, was getting on this film. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Which, as a child, the level of stirred up that people got over this is just outrageous. So here's our reintroduction. Right at uh, 140. Father Lancaster Marin. 
done. They said he's familiar with the right. He's done rights before, which they do talk about. That they do a prequel. I time may prove me wrong, but was I, that Dominion? Dominion. Yeah, that movie was awful. Oh God, it's terrible. I could not. It's rough. I watched that. I think it came out two thousand five ish. So here's so we are to the number one iconic shot that of the the Magritte where you see the actual beam of light from the window just sort of pointing at Father Marin Jeez, out here shot. on the street. Cuts to key lighting on Reagan. Yeah, this basic manifest, and they also started to do front projection. They started yeah. to blend in scenes of front projection. Again, to remember Max von Sydow, only in his... As soon as the priests introduce each other once to another, uh, that would be Karis and Marin. Reagan calls out. Marin doesn't want the background of the case. That's important worth noting. He immediately tells them exactly the things that they need, Father Karras, to retrieve them, essentially. He's the gopher in this situation to the superior priest. Just some of this sound design is just... It's crazy to actually hear it with headphones, too. Yeah. How it pans back left and and right, too. This shot... There's so many just gorgeous shots in this. Some of it looks like it's framed like a stage play. Definitely. But some of these tight shots are just... The composition is just beautiful. The shot of him praying the rosary is just... Again, I see why they say that these things are profoundly spiritual. So some of the controversies, too, behind the film I wanted to mention real quickly while we're watching this in a little bit lower moment. Brandy has been offered now to Father Marin, I should mention. And (laughs) Father Marin says he shouldn't have it, but he'll take it because his will is weak at the moment. The doctor shouldn't. Yeah. Or say I shouldn't, but thank God my will is weak. Uh, One woman sued the WB, actually, for passing out and breaking her jaw amidst of uh, viewing this film. So he's setting down rules of engagement. Father Marin is. He said, don't engage in conversation. The demon is a liar. He would like to confuse you. Lies will be embedded in the truth, too, to attack them. Also, another thing, a carpenter lost his thumb and a lighting tech lost his toe throughout shooting this movie. We mentioned earlier in 1949, these these events are based off of a real 14-year-old boy that happened in... St. Louis, as far as the Exorcism Acts. So he was from Maryland, from, I think, Rainier. They made a book based on the diaries of it called Possessed that was made into a movie starring Timothy Dalton that was not great. Yeah. Now, Possessed is effectively what... William Peter Blatty wanted to write. He wanted access to those diaries from the exorcism, and he couldn't get it, so he wrote his 
fictional account based on what information he could get. He he could receive a lot, and a lot of it was like the things like the messages written on the skin. Those are from that story. No, they uh, post they when during the exorcism, they posted the story of it in the Washington Post. The story of it was in a nationally syndicated newspaper that a boy was released from demonic possession. Which is unheard of. That Which is where Blatt... So Blatty was at school in Georgetown during that time. He read that story. And when he set out to write what eventually ended up being The Exorcist, that's what he was shooting for, was trying to do that story. So oh, around he, the so 144, 50 mark. 145 uh, right here. Max so, von Shadow, of course. Uh, Father Marin enters the room with Karis. They're about to perform the exorcism. They have the rites of exorcism. I want to point out them. that Reagan Damien looks scared shitless. Yes. Jason, Jason Miller is doing a fantastic job of looking absolutely terrified. White contact eyes. We we've changed out the rolled up whites for like black eyes, but those rolled up white eyes scare me so much more. I agree. All I think when I see the the black eyes is when Wes Borland from Limp Biscuit used to wear the full eye black contact, which creeped me out back in the day for sure. We're going through the exorcism scene right now, or at least the attempt at first thereof. You see that it's got call and response. Which is common in the... Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. Your mother cooks socks in hell. So here we have the bed lifting. So they make point of calling him a roaring lion. You saw the lion with wings. Man, what a performance physically. Oh, I know. You know. Linda Blair, wow. I need to go back and find out who actually won supporting actress that year for what role. Because, goddamn, this is a travesty. She didn't get it. Marion's throwing some holy water on the shit. Giving the demon a facial. Bed is lifting up and levitating now. Father Karras is literally shitting his drawers. Yeah. Marion is calling for Karras for the response, and he is unable to do so. So here's another pan, another one of those quick subliminal cuts. There's a Pazuzu. Now, uh, we had to mention, too, there was cuts of Serpentons into this in post, uh, especially as the director's cut came out in 1990s. Technological advances came along. 
I know that it's said that Freakin, in retrospect, did not care for this because he uh, felt like he came out some very... of the visuals in this. Yeah, like that wide open eyes. I think this is especially now the 4K restorations coming more evident, especially uh, on Max Van Shadow's makeup work. It's still good. It's still good. Don't get me wrong, but it's a little bit more evident. Yeah. Well, again, I'm used to seeing this. I'm used to seeing it on film stock. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, me too. This was not... Some of these weren't meant to... Even with this, it still holds up. Now you have Pazuzu tormenting. One of, another one of the wild things that took place on set, too, we got to mention real quickly. I guess then you've likened this back or harkened this back to the refrigeration unit taking uh, shit out, I guess, or something. But uh, there's really been no logical explanation brought to the forefront beyond that. A thin layer of snore was actually all over the set whenever they returned. And the funny thing is, this is an indoor set. So uh, really, no one knows why, but they've just equated it back to the refrigeration yeah. that they've employed. And uh, you could see it kind of as they enter this scene in particular. The demon is cracking the drywall and stucco and throwing things around. And the head yeah, is starting to swivel head around. Rotation. This is the one that I always that always sticks with me right here. Oh, did a three sixty. That's front project. That's front projection on the face yeah. again. Just so many of these effects. The demons going after Karis, particularly yeah. because it's side of the weak point in this situation. The restraints are starting to rip away. The demon is starting to levitate from the bed inside of Reagan's body, of course. Uh. Karis is shook straight up. Yeah. Like, literally and figuratively. The power of Christ compels you. Iconic scene right Yeah, here. one of the more iconic things that have... In unison, Karrison and Marin shaking the holy water. As he throws the holy water onto Reagan, it's creating lashes on the yeah. skin, harkening back to uh, Christ's demise. The power of Christ compels you. This shot, though, you talked about the makeup. That makeup is outstanding yeah, right there. Yeah, right there, and that's a close-up shot, too. The demon starts these, to rescind yeah, back into the close, bed. Some of these close cuts are just incredible. 151, 17, 18, 19, 20. Here we are getting here retied. Karis is tying the demon back. Uh, Reagan, I should say. Yeah. Reagan's in the supine position. Chest up. Hands tied across the chest, feet being tied back to the post individually, but we get the double axe handle to the yeah. back of the head. Randy Savage on the top rope. It's at this point I'm thinking about 
Repossessed. Did you ever watch Repossessed? It doesn't ring a bell at the moment. So it's a Leslie Nielsen comedy. Oh, yes, I did see that, actually. With Linda Blair in it. Yes. About her being possessed. Yes. And at one point, they do bring in, like, Paul Bearer. Yeah. Here's Percy the, Pringle. This is another incredible right, so Pazuzu shot. statue is manifested inside the room in the background. So Karis is looking like he just went 10 rounds trying to get up. Which is funny because you, you, you were got, to assume he's the younger priest in this yeah. dynamic and uh, he's the one fucking flopping around like he's about to die. Well, I think they point out Marin's strength is faith. Like, Karis might be physically stronger. Right. But Marin is spiritually stronger. All that boxing did you a lot of good, Karis. Yeah. Done fucked up, son. Need to get that girl bound up again, though. Another one of the controversies we got to mention real quickly with the filming that took place. Uh, while they were filming, the set actually burned down the house itself. The only thing that was intact was Reagan's room, so this adds to the lore of everything that took place. Allegedly, a bird flew into the electrical box, so here we are talking about birds again. And it delayed filming, I believe it was five to six weeks, so... So, something you're going to hear if you listen in the background, this is another very subtle thing that they put in, that sort of fell voices choir, that is uh, cues that they took when they were doing the temp score. Friedkin used uh, Christoph Penderecki's uh, Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. Ah. which sounds like a thousand voices just screaming in terror all yeah. at once. And they played that as a sort of a hum in the background. It's an unsettling piece of music. Here's the explanation yeah. that they give that Marin's understanding of possession. Why, why you possess somebody, especially a child. Because it's funny as the uh, lighting on Karis right now almost looks like Pazuzu. Well, yeah, they, they make it a point. I think that they use that as a motif, that, that sure. lighting. Especially sort of that haggard Him more lighting. so than anybody, in my opinion, though. But it has a lot to do with his uh, sunken in facial features. Yeah. J- important, important to know, Jason Miller already sort of in the depths of alcoholism at this point in his yeah. life. When he came back and did uh, Legion, Exorcist 3, he was even further down, and you can tell, but he's already struggling with alcoholism in this. We mentioned earlier that there's nine deaths tied to this film. Uh, Just to account for some of those, Set Tech, A Night Watchman, Father Karras's mother, right in this. Speaking the of the actual actress, and then we got to cut to her here now, where he's confronting the demon. He was actually seeing her as seeing his her. mother. Relatives of both Linda Blair and Max von Shadow died throughout the filming of this as well, to account for some of those nine deaths. Friedkin and Blatty both talked about that. They said every movie they've been involved with, people die. 
You know, sure. like sure. you're shoot, especially something that's big budget and taking longer. There's gonna, it's gonna happen. You're gonna have people die in the process. Now, uh, twist to the knife to Karis as the mother, Demi, using his pet name. Even it's dark. You hear those undertone growls. Yeah. Those contacts are just horrifying. Yeah. This movie don't fuck around. No. Not for a minute. Pazuzu is speaking in Greek, even. Languages they've never heard. God, some of these makeup effects are just horrendous. So, yeah, Max They're just so grody. Bon Shadows, Father Karen is throwing out, or Marin, excuse me, yeah. is throwing out Karis now because he's being too personally involved in the yeah. exchange. I mean, there's there's power in numbers, right? So, and that's yeah. a, even a thing that a, a theme that's explored throughout the Bible. Marin is on his own trying to tackle this situation, which is very concerning. And remember that the uh, demon always refers to them as in the plural sense of us. There's more than one of them. Marin popping out a crucifix here. Giving a little kissy to Jesus. Giving JC a PP kiss. Won't be the first time I would assume. I mean, being realistic. I mean, it is Catholic, and yeah, yeah this time altar boy oh, joke boy. insert here. <laughs> I'm sure they would prefer you didn't. <laughs> but we did, anyways. Yeah. Ugh. There's some real guttural sounds going the on sound- too at so- this point. They are really sounds, not just the demise, it sounds of illness. Like, you yes. ever had a real bad, like, chest cold? For sure. And you breathe out, and it just, you stop breathing out, but your chest keeps making that sound. Yeah, like that, a wheezy delay. Yeah. That's what they're using. They get, makes it very unsettling, because they're organic sounds, and they're very mucus-filled and gross. So this is a shot. So there's a lot of motifs, too, we got to mention, too, of uh, the prayer hand situation. Uh, You'll notice in a picture early with the bedside picture I mentioned next to Chris's bed of Reagan, she actually had her hands in that position. So this is a moment that they pull on set. There's a response in this scene, and the way that they got the response was that Up in the rafters, William Friedkin had taken a starter pistol and he had set the starter pistol off to make the actors jump. Uh, 
One thing I got to mention too, back to the mentions of the lore of this film and the evil undertones and just all the uh, hubbub about it is eventually at, at one point freaking actually did bring in uh, Reverend Berman to actually excise the set as well. So yeah, I mean like even the cast and crew were shaken and whether or not freaking himself actually believed in all this, uh, he certainly knew or was aware of the concerns. So now we're back inside of Reagan's room. We're going to mention real quickly. And Father Karras has covered Marin dead on the bed, laid over. Reagan is loose. Holy water is just pouring out on the floor. Karras is trying resuscitation methods. Um, but he is Obviously deader dead. than a motherfucking doornail. And the demon is just eating its popcorn. Basically we're at the two hour, 50 second, 51 mark. We're in the last bit. This So now Father Karras is throwing some yeah. jabs right handed. That's, that's a hook. There's the Saint Joseph's medallion. Ripped. Karras says Joseph's to the demon, take off. me. And so now the demon has jumped from Reagan to Karras. Karis looks at the window. Contemplates killing. Jumps out the window. Head dive to the stairs. Takes a tumble. You gotta wonder how some of these shots are achieved. Some of them from outside, you understand. The yeah. stuntman. But literally, when you see it falling down the steps, I wonder if William Friedkin didn't just take a camera and throw it. Like, put it on record and throw it down the steps. So we saw the detective and Chris enter the room. People in the street so, run toward Karis. Karis is busted up, bleeding out on the sidewalk. Here's another bit of... Uh, Karis is torn up from the floor up. So here's another bit of... Uh, direction things that we're going to talk about. Because you're going to see the, ac- the priest actor who played plays Father Dyer. Yeah. He shows up here and he sees... Shortly before this starts, because you see him crying on camera, William Friedkin pulled him off camera and slapped him in the face. Full hand slapped Ooh, him in I the face. I did not come across that, so that's interesting to know. <laughs> so he's now so now Dyer's now giving Damien his last rights. And Damien is can, squeezing his hand back, so Damian there is can, life left. This shot specifically, right where you see him shaking, right before that, he had Freaking on the other side of his face that isn't in off. frame, he full hand slapped him across the face. God damn. So, uh, I think we overlooked this earlier, but whenever Karis took the dump down the steps, the initial sot, the actor effects, there was fight pigs to the left of the screen written. And uh, that's a biblical reference, of course, the graffiti there. Right. I mean, you think fight pigs, that's against the police, of course, but secondarily, if you go into uh, the pigs that were possessed with legion and ran off the cliffside, again, another biblical reference with intent. Because Jesus was an exorcist. That's things people don't talk about in the Bible. Jesus was throwing out demons. <laughs> Here we are, two dead bodies later. One a priest. One a filthy-mouthed British director. Medallion again. 
So now we've come full circle. The medallion, the medallion that very much the same type of medallion that Father Marin found at the dig in northern Iraq was the type of medallion that Damien Karras was wearing. It was pulled off of him by, by the possessed Reagan McNeil and now given to Chris McNeil to wear from now on. How perfect some of this restoration looks. I like to have that Mercedes. That it's well, that gorgeous tuxedo black like that's you lose that in the original form. You lose that. You you can see it here. Like just that cuz it has a mirror finish on it and that 4K just makes it gorgeous. So Reagan sees a priest. Gives Father Dyer a kiss on the cheek. A little kiss on the cheek. Here we have Carl, cleared of having murdered anyone. Original suspect. That's who I would originally suspect myself. The man who the British director kept calling a Nazi. Let me ask you, in the novel, do they ever give you tips of the cap or, like, uh, red herrings where they make you think it's somebody else? Or They like... do, actually. Okay. Again, they, they, they hint around that it could have been Carl. They hint around various different people in the novel. The big one I always remember is Carl. So Chris tries yeah. to give Father Carl back the uh, medallion, and he says, why don't you keep it, and gives it back to her, so... And Linda Blair, Reagan, waves. They pull off. Father Dyer cuts back to him in the daytime. And and the framing is going to be almost as that of whenever Max von Shadow approaches the house, but in the opposite direction. So now he's going to approach the uh, Georgetown stairs that we talk about. Basically, just an alleyway. The boarded up window in the background. We're going to cut focus. To those stairs. Audio cuts out there entirely too. Interesting enough. I didn't ever yeah, really they, notice they that. They very before. gradually let the hum of it come back in. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, like a moment so, of silence, if you will. Yeah. He's just sitting con- looking at broken glass on the street. Lieutenant back. To pay his last respects to the fam. Catches up a dire on the situation. So this is basically a Casablanca ending. Because you have these two who meet up, start talking about movies. So he asked him basically the same question he asked Karis. Which is if he wants to go see a movie. Weathering Heights. Yeah. Jackie Gleason. Lucille oh. Ball. <laughs> yeah, Father Dyer's already. The only the joke. There's there's two jokes in this movie, and Kinderman gets both of them. 
basically this ties to back to like I said, it's Casablanca in, ending. This could be the start of a beautiful friendship, right? Right. They go on in the lore that effectively they do become friends, good friends. So we cut end credits. The Exorcist. We All did right. it. Directed by William Friedkin. Yep. Right at the uh, yep. 206 mark or so here. Yep. 206 and a half Blatty. at the William Peter Blatty novel. And we will right, stop our digital screening here. Overall thoughts again, Joey. We've watched this for the umpteenth time individually. What are, what are we thinking here? Still holds up the test of time, huh? Absolutely. This is still one of my benchmark movies. Now, is it as harsh as other movies are nowadays? No. Well, it's, it's not as crass in some ways, but in other ways it is just as equally if you talk about the dialogue. It's Especially when you see the juxtaposition, it's uglier. The juxtaposition is uglier. It's a harder turn right. because if you go and look at like, if you compare a movie back then to now with like, say the level of dialogue like Quentin Tarantino would have, right. there's going to be some a lot of vulgarity. And that just sort of comes, people sort of throw vulgarity into scripts as a placeholder for actual comedy sometimes. Sure. But... As far as the actual, like, yeah, the juxtaposition of this very tame and very, you know, a lot of times it's very clinical the way that they're looking at certain things versus the the visceral that you have when when they're on the ground level and they're having this interaction and this battle, so to speak. It's it's more it, it has more of an effect on you. Because you're you're in this pattern, you get in this this sort of this sixties, late sixties, early seventies sort of pattern that is common to that type of writing, that type of movie, versus this real harsh and very pointed vulgarity from the demon. Like right. those things at the time, especially, were like you're saying very, very inappropriate things, like very right. blasphemous things. Right about, you know, having carnal knowledge of the Savior. Right. Or, you know, them having homosexual relationships between the two priests. Right. Those things might be have been understood as part of it at the time, but that that you have something that is basically giving voice to that and saying these really disgusting, like, the very pointedly vulgar things. So that and then the effects, the effects still hold up now. I mean... Right. Anything that's 50 years old, there's going to be some rickety. With I mean, it. this has very little, though. Very little. To and be fair. The, you have somebody who's pretty expert at cutting around those things, too. Right. So even the things like the 180-degree, the like the head rotations, right. they pull that twice yes. in that movie. Yes. You don't even hardly realize it one of the times that they did it. Right. One time it's so quick. The first time. That yeah. it snaps around, and you're like, holy crap. Yeah. It's seconds. Yeah, they literal like you can split it frame by frame into you know seconds or less than seconds, however many frames. Like a half second is twelve frames. They they are literally lingering on it as little as possible, so you're getting the maximum effect. You get that rotation and that snap of that head facing all the way backwards, and then you have the overdub, the Burke Dennings voice, uh, basically accusing Reagan of murdering him. And it's it is shocking for the time. It's that's shocking. The crucifix scene, the the crucifix masturbation is still shocking. It's still 
It's not just shocking. It's in a, shocking in a way that you feel it. Right. And everything's situational, too. Like, when she grabs the mother's head and shoves it into her private, it's like, oh, it's my daughter at 12, and that's the mother. And, like, understand, like, yeah. how crazy this situation is. My my fucking wig would have been blown off yeah. at that point. It, if sure. I'd have seen that in a theater in the yeah. 70s, like, if I'd have been the same age that I am now, yeah. like, I would have had to have walked out. Like, I'm, I'm a little more... We're obviously a little more inoculated against those things, right? But I, like I said, if I'd have been almost forty years old in right. the theater in nineteen seventy three, watching a twelve year old shove her mother's face into her bloody privates after she stabbed herself with a crucifix, yeah. I'd have been like, "Peace, <laughs> I am out." <laughs> yeah. And one thing they don't explore in the film, which uh, it's not necessary, is like what what is the after treatment for such an event. <laughs> I mean, you can see all over the faces. Like, there's... uh, This is a character-driven film. And the performances land at every aspect in turn. That's why it makes this movie stand the test of time. And I think that's the most important point that we can lean into in closing. Oh, yeah. Ellen Burstyn just looks shell-shocked. She looks like she has just been through war. Jason Miller... Like you said, that scene where he like where he is doing the actual uh, the actual act of the exorcism. No, no, when he's when he's doing the actual the communion, when he's breaking the wafer, you. Yeah. and you see this just slow dawn. Like he's going through so many different emotions. He almost has that thousand mile this. stare about him. Yeah, he's doing the thousand. Yeah, he's doing that thousand yard stare, and just not hardly seeing anything. But you see all these emotions ranging all over his face. Some of the perform like these, even like the little, like the smaller performances, like they don't get a bunch of credit or a bunch of attention. Like physically, the way that they deliver some of those lines, like we talked about it earlier, is they make a transition of referring to Reagan as a little girl at, to referring to Reagan as an it. Right, right, right. It wants no subtleties. straps. It exactly. wants, yeah, Carl says, it wants no straps. Yes. And that's with the decision, the conscious decision of... Which is mastorial director decisions, oh yeah. right? Like, and it's, again, it's subtle things. Like, there's little subtle things. Like, for all the, the things you hear about the bombast and, like, how... Like it's, I talked about Friedkin having some brutal techniques right. on getting performances. It all amounts to these subtle things. And, like I said, some of the framing is just... It's absolutely... Before he makes that last trip up right. the stairs... And he's sitting on that little bench, and you can see the stairway. It's just, it's so beautifully composed. Just absolutely. Freakin is a director, like most of his experience up to this point was filming TV movies or TV series. And I think this was his third feature, if not second, in his entire filmography. And went on to do other great films, but it's just like really incredible to like look at it edit in that context and know that this is actually early in his feature filmography as well and yeah he'd only the done that he was able to accomplish with this film yeah he had only done a couple of he'd only done a couple of movies at that point so the big thing is though is like he'd had a success he netted a success early on in his career right uh the french connection i think he did the great train robbery before that i think that was in the late 60s as well but the French Connection was yeah, just French Connection was seventy two, and actually, I think his first, I can't remember the name of the film, but it, like his first like critically acclaimed film was the film that he explored. I know it was like um like a homosexual 
uh, the only the only one that I can think of of his is uh, is that I keep thinking about cruising, but that was after the fact. Oh, boys in the band. Boys in the band. Boys that's in the exactly band. What that's I was it. thinking yeah. of. Yep, that's the one. Yeah. So like that was 1970. So again, the year before, prior to even that one, and uh, that was that one's got a 90 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's uh, relatively well critically acclaimed, uh, starring Kenneth Nielsen, I believe. You know that that. That movie in and of itself, too, was kind of a controversial subject matter at the time just because, you know, it referred to homosexuality and that was kind of a Well, it didn't just refer to it. It didn't just refer to it. It just, it freaking, yeah, he had an evolved stance on it. From there, so, oh, the the Brinks job is the one I was thinking of. The Brinks job has similar, some, some masks and some Dick Smith stuff in it. The one I'm thinking of, so... The Exorcist was one of those things that I mean, it's a once that's a once in a career movie. Oh, for sure. Now, the, and I mean, the sad, French Connection's great yeah. too. But. French Connection is absolutely awesome. Gene Hackman is killer yeah. in that movie. That whole movie is great. Got some of the better chase scenes in it. Now, what's sad is he was very much on a track, and he's had a he's had a lot of good movies since then. His follow up though, he he kind of got tanked as a director and it's sad because i've recently given this a revisit i remembered seeing it on tv like on kdnl like 30 when it was still 30 when i was a kid and it was sorcerer i think we talked about that after the fact and oh my god sorcerer is so good yeah i think so sorcerer is one of those films that have gained its cult following in decades past it has got it it has earned its reputation so the thing that kills me about Sorcerer, and it is, not only is it a good human drama, and just a, one of the most tense movies I've ever watched, that bridge crossing during the flood is one of the tensest fucking things I've ever seen in my, like, you are going to pay for a whole seat, but you're only going to need the edge of it. Right. Like, you're the whole time you're sitting there going, me and my son watched that, and both of us are like... God, oh God, I'm sitting here wringing our hands and shit. Yeah, yeah. It went nowhere at the time. And it's it's a big budget movie. And it had, it. it's a, I might have to, say we were to discuss a remake series or anything like that. Sorcerer's a remake of a French film. Really? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Might be something that I, I want to put my, my pen in so no one else could claim it if, we, if I was ever to have that discussion. But anyway, Sorcerer top of the list for you absolutely one of the best just nice intense fucking movie i actually have never seen it so i've got it we should watch it roy scheider just so here's the kicker the killer about it is what tanked sorcerer sorcerer would have been fucking huge do you know what it opened against star wars (laughs) it opened against episode four yeah so it just went smooth under the radar it opened against A New Hope because they were expecting a little bit out of Star Wars when it came out. They're like, "Yeah, it's going to be good. You know, it's going to do well. It's going to it make its budget back." Watching. And then it just went it was a smooth the fuck off into the phenomena that it still is today. And I am a little, I'm begrudging. Like I respect Star Wars, I respect the hustle, I respect what it is, but I'm a little bit pissed at it because yeah. it just absolutely. 
me and Brad had a long discuss. Me and Brad Sexton had a long discussion about Sorcerer after it came out. He, I had told him, I was like, dude, you have to watch it. Like, you have to go back and watch it. Yeah. And he he texted me back. He's like, I bought it. That movie's fucking intense. It is, man. Like, well, we got some homework for you guys. Definitely yeah. to check that one out. Absolutely. And, uh, just, I know we're getting a little long in the tooth here. So just to kind of wrap things out real quickly, Exorcist still yet. Even after my umpteenth viewing of this favorite film of all time, quite possibly, it holds up. The, everything's efficient. There's no fat in this movie. If anything, I want more. And I think that's the mark of a good movie is leaving you wanting more. Wouldn't you agree, Joy? Absolutely. It's, it is one of those things that nothing really feels unresolved, but they, and it's doesn't get a good bow because it's, it's a down ending, you know? Sure. Like, yes... Van- evil's vanquished but at what cost the cost of two two men who well three two who one who died defending his faith and one who one who finally rediscovered it right only to have to take the hardest way out and possibly damning himself in the process that's yeah. the that's the whole so. premise of exorcist three spoiler alert in case you want to know because the catholic faith of course we got to mention real quickly yeah. though to get back to your illusion that you just made is if you commit suicide you've damned yourself to hell uh they i mean at least traditional catholicism they do not believe that if you commit suicide that you can go to heaven yeah it is not a venal sin it's a cardinal sin right so it you will land yourself in yeah and that's effectively where exorcist 3 picks up Again, it's it's a thirty plus year old movie, so I can't say it's too much of a spoiler alert. Yeah. In in future viewings, you can skip two because even though John Borman directed it and John Borman's got a fantastic eye and cinematically there's some cool things in it, you're not missing any it's it's real light on anything of importance to a plot. Versus three, which William Peter Blatty directed and wrote, and is just as pitch black as the Exorcist, if not more so. And has some out-of-their-skin performances from a couple of actors. George C. Scott is fantastic. Bradley Dourif is yeah. fantastic. Jason Miller is great in that movie. What is his name? Kevin Halloran is even in it. He's not much of a presence in it, but he is in it too. If you want to have a nice little palate cleanser aperitif in between, I would recommend The Ninth Configuration because in addition to being strange... It's also it it's also very funny. Like very bizarrely funny, but it's funny. And it's got a it's got a killer cast to it. It's and that's another one Blatty wrote and directed that one based on a novel that he wrote. All those books okay. that he wrote. So he wrote Legion, which is effectively Exorcist 3. Legion falls more to someone doing something similar to say not to be confusion confused with the yeah, movie legion yeah. no <laughs> correct yeah Le- so when exorcist 3 was originally released that's what it was called though it was called right. legion he wa- he didn't want it to have an association with the exorcist basically it's the reincarnation or the resurfacing of a deceased killer who is similar to the zodiac i would recommend especially they said brad duraf gives some of the best creepy fucking monologues in that and does that really unsettling thing if you ever seen brad duraf on screen which everyone has at some point brad duraf has a trick that he'll pull where he'll do a monologue and it'll be a very extended monologue and he won't blink 
he'll just cry while he's talking. Like so he'll have like a tear he'll have tears running down his face while he's giving a monologue that he's screaming and raging during and yeah. he's not blinking. It's unsettling to watch. And I know that there's a lot more in the exorcist uh world, if you will, that is worth talking about. And that's certainly why we wanted Joey on this episode so he could kind of detail some of that because my love and my fixation's always been with Exorcist, the movie and the original from 1973, which we've done and completed the watch along with today. Joey, thanks for joining me on this journey, and hopefully everybody got a little something out of this watch along. 50 years, baby. Here's to 50 more. Absolutely. One last tank to send you all off, all right? All right. To the bitter end. Hey, this is Josh from ACI Podcast. For show updates and news about the podcast, follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast 22 on Twitter at podcast underscore ATI, on Instagram at the ATI Podcast, on TikTok at ATI Podcast. DMs are always welcome. Have a question for the show? You can always email us at atipodcastquestions at gmail.com. Stay safe out there. This is Barrett from the ATI Podcast. Each week, Josh and I discuss current events, pop culture, music, TV, movies, politics, sports. Nothing is out of bounds. You can also tune in to learn about rising artists, small businesses, whether it's music, graphic design, filmmaking, or even a brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop shop. We will be spotlighting folks and their endeavors. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Anchor, or anywhere you enjoy your podcast. Just search ATI Podcast. We would like to thank you for your continued support. And as always, please stay safe out there.